Hey, welcome to Jay Flunce's Ignorance. I think this is episode 12, and I'm super excited. I got my first obligatory hate mail in the in the email subject line said obligatory hate mail, and I thought that was hilarious. And Dave Kerber has returned. Uh, Dave was on the podcast a month or two ago, I think. Recently, yeah. Yeah. I don't know when. Um, Dave was homeless for a week, as you may recall. If you don't, click back in the previous episodes and take a listen to that one. And uh, we're here to talk about, as a follow-up, I think, to uh, last week's uh, podcast that we did on uh, Prohibition, where Hashani Hunter and I covered lots and lots of different topics right. and rambled extensively. And then we also have uh, Alec is back uh, from episode zero, all the way back in the mists of time. <laughs> so this is our first of many things. This is our first... Uh, Obligatory hate mail response. This is our first response. This is, these are our first be, returning guests, and this is the first time we've had more than two people on the podcast. We, we should be clear. There was nothing hateful in the email. <laughs> no, no. Yes. Right. Okay. No, it was hilarious. I yeah. thought it was funny. Okay. And so, yeah, I did not take it at all as aggressive or anything. Dave's a great guy. Um, so what are we talking about? So should we rehash last week, or what do we want to do? Yeah, we could talk over it a little bit. I, I do want to say, first of all, I think uh, – I thought what you guys said was thoughtful, and uh, I disagreed with a lot of it, but I didn't think any of it was negative or anything like that. So I'm not here to say you suck or anything like that. <laughs> well, I was hoping to stir up a lot more controversy than that. It has to get it has to get crazy style here. We got to go. Okay. Well, maybe we'll do a third episode. Where we bring Hashani back, <laughs> right. and then we actually use guns. <laughs> we, we settle well, things. Let's do Nerf. We've got a salt shooter here. Actually, there was a Hornet. Buzzing my head. Oh wow! Earlier today, and there's a salt shooter that shoots exciting. a little tiny. Have you guys seen the? It shoots a little tiny uh, grain of salt and can kill flies with a grain of salt. That's wow. exciting. It's exciting office toy, you know, when the nerf, when the nerf is not quite uh, right extreme wow. enough. Or if you want to do like extreme <laughs> margarita making. Oh yeah, one <laughs> grain at a time. <laughs> Put it on fully automatic mode. Say hi, Alex, and people know you're here. Hi. Yeah. Sorry. Sitting Yay. quietly here. <laughs> Alex back. Woo. All right. So let's see. To rehash what I think I said last week, uh, I think what I was trying to figure out was um, there's parts of me that uh, think that it seems like prohibition doesn't work. It seems like we learned century or not uh, dozens of years ago that alcohol alcohol prohibition doesn't work. And it seems to me that drug prohibition doesn't work. It seems to me we have millions of people in jail for nonviolent crimes. Uh, we have lots of people in jail uh, because they're addicted to substances, and I feel that would be better handled as a, a health issue, not a criminal justice issue, not a uh, put-them-in-prison issue, because I don't think that's helping in most cases. Um, but then I have this, and then what was pointed out to me like a month ago was Hey, if you're against prohibition of all of these things because you don't think it works, then why is it that you think that there's too many guns on the street and that that would work? Like that we, we'd do something about the number of guns or the accessibility of guns or who can have them or under what conditions they can have them, get our statistics down and we'd have less violent crime dealing with guns. And so that was the, I think that was the core, uh, thing in my head I was struggling with in terms of am I a hypocrite because I think prohibition doesn't work but I think guns are a special case and Ashani and I talked for an hour and a half and 
might have come up with something something about how guns make it way too easy for you to stomp on other people's uh, liberties and rights right. and freedoms and whatever, and that that's the difference. Like, if you're going to destroy your own life with drugs, that's one thing. That's a prohibition maybe that doesn't work. and uh, you know, So maybe that's a dividing line, and maybe none of that was useful to anyone listening. I don't know. But I know you guys were listening. So. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because here I we listen. Are. Yeah. I listen. Um, we have listeners. Excellent. Um, oh, wow. How cool. Before we go into any response, I want to uh, point out something in the way that you phrased your question that I think will be important moving forward. And that is that you said that you're against prohibition because you don't think that it works. But um, I, I think there, but it seems that uh, throughout the podcast, you also talked a lot about the fact that you just in general don't think that there's anything particularly wrong with drugs. So I think there's actually, there's actually two questions here. Should we want to get rid of guns? And if we tried to do it, would that actually work? And, and they're, they're sort of two separate things. Yeah. And I, right, right. Like, like, are you against drug prohibition because you don't think people should be allowed to control their own bodies? Sorry to phrase it in such an inflammatory way. Or are you against drug prohibition because you think that it's a huge state expenditure? I'm against it for both reasons, but I want to be clear about that. Yeah, and I think there's the, the moralist argument and then the consequentialist, right? Or yes. the, the principled argument versus, okay, what happens when we actually try to do this? Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I had a similar approach too. So I, I agree with you. I don't think prohibition works. I think alcohol proved that. I think, um, the fact that, you know, prostitution, gambling, uh, a lot of gun, gun ownership today, proves that if somebody wants something, they're going to get it and they're going to find a way to do it. And by making it illegal, you raise the cost of it, but you also raise the profit availability for those people who are willing to break the law. But because it's illegal, they can make a lot more money at it. And for those people who are okay breaking the law to get a profit, it makes it a better business deal for them. So you're not actually getting rid of it. You're just subverting it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I just watched, you know, another series on Netflix, a new series called Pablo. And okay. It's all about Pablo Escobar and his, you know, reign of terror in Central America or South America and, and okay. just, you know, how much of our crime gets pushed, you know, across the border. Yeah. Uh, because we make drugs illegal and therefore there's all this profit to be made. And if yeah, drugs, there's a lot of money in doing yeah. things that are legal. Right. Or Absolutely. providing things that are legal. Yeah. And if, if there was an open market, if there was heroin in, uh, in vending machines. Right. Right. Maybe, well, so my understanding of the, <laughs> the my understanding of the statistical studies that have been done are uh -huh. that our best guess is that because you can look at different countries that have different things that are legal or illegal yeah. and, you know, Holland or whatever. And my understanding is that what happens is you will have slightly higher usage rates because okay. more people, more kids, as, as an example, will try something. Possible, sure, yeah. Um, but the overall impact on all of society uh, is pretty negative when you start jailing millions of people for nonviolent offense on, on the drug side of it. Yeah, I, I think it's a tragedy. And I think what it, what it comes down to, to kind of lay the framework, is this difference between law and legislation. And... I know it goes back to Adam Smith, that it might go back farther, the, the difference between those two things. So uh, law, as described in this framework, is something that it's not written down. It's an emergent thing that emerges from the individual behaviors of, of everybody. So it's, it's kind of like the English language, where 
it's or any language. It's a result of human action and human decisions, right? To use a word or not use a word or communicate a word, but not a result of human planning. Legislation being the actual laws that are written on paper. Yeah, I was going to get to that. Right, yeah. So, like, English common law a long time ago was not written down. It was just enforcement of what everybody knew to be the law. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So simple things like, I can't just take your stuff. You know, that's based on natural rights that are in the common law. It didn't have to be written down anywhere. Everybody just knew it. Hmm. Right? And then legislation is what a congressman or a congressman's aides or somebody, you know, a member of parliament or somebody writes down and then they vote on it and they say, okay, this is, this is the legislation we've passed. Right. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So when you look at it that way, uh, particularly with drugs, like I told you with my homeless experience, I was offered marijuana every single day. Every day, uh, by people who had known me for 30 seconds. So if you think about the law, most people think marijuana is fine. And it's not really against the law because probably everybody knows somebody who's smoking marijuana and they go, well, okay, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But we've passed legislation against it. So it's when that legislation butts up against that law that you get people that are just going, well, screw the legislation. You know, everybody knows this is okay. I'm okay with this, and this is this is fine. And I, and I think that's why prohibition essentially doesn't work because we're we're passing legislation to say you can't do something that most people are okay with you doing. Yeah, it's an interesting definition you know I mean? of yeah, it's an interesting definition of law that I haven't heard before because I think if you well, asked, I come up with it, but yeah, <laughs> if you asked anyone in law enforcement whether or not someone's following the law, smoking pot, they'll say obviously not. They're obviously right. not following the law because right. you can look in our legislation in, in, in those terms. Yeah, I've got statute B, subsection <laughs> right. 2 that says, so you I know. I don't think anyone in law enforcement would say that the law is whatever people generally think is cool or not. And what people generally think is cool or not varies wildly depending on who you ask, of course. Well, I, I think – I don't think it does though. Um, maybe what's cool is, is the wrong way to phrase it. But, like, what's acceptable behavior in society? Uh, I think there's a there's a baseline of things that 99.9% of people should agree you should not do. And that's what I would call the law. Right? So, don't, don't kill people. Don't take their stuff. Um, well, I think that's most of it. <laughs> you know? And so, that, that's really the, the law. Um, hmm. And then the rest is is legislation, some of it attempting to put in formal words the law. Then a lot of it is just special interests or zealots or uh, people that don't like other people having fun, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seeking to influence others or, or seek benefits from the government, yeah, and I, from the I, state. I think that's where I'm most reactive. Where I'm most reactive to legislation is when groups of people try to control other people's behavior that's that's where i get driven crazy by um right you know it 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 seems to me that as a society you know we're all trying to get along together and we're all paying taxes hopefully lots of us paying taxes most of us not me just not not property taxes sucker i cheat (laughs) okay yeah (laughs) 
So, hmm. so I think that's why the like drug prohibition doesn't work. I think that's why the alcohol prohibition didn't work. Uh, I think as society's attitudes towards sex evolve, that's why you see things like that. So um, interesting. I don't know if this is totally correct, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Uh, you could argue that America's uh, stance and general view to homosexuality has changed over the last 50 years. Oh, yeah. Right? It's changed dramatically. And you could argue that the law has evolved from one where people don't consider that acceptable to where they do. Right? And now the legislation has caught up with that. As a matter of fact, I, I heard, I didn't read it, but I heard in the majority opinion in the Obergefell case, the gay marriage case that the Supreme Court just ruled on, uh, the majority opinion said, I hate this because I don't agree with it, but one of the roles of the Supreme Court is when most of society has basically decided upon something, it's the Supreme Court's job to just say, okay, it's, it's time to close this argument and just say this is how it's going to be. So in the case of gay marriage, it, it said most of America has already decided this is okay. Lots of states have said this is okay, and none of them have caught on fire. We're just going to say this is acceptable, and it's a right as defined in the Constitution because the the law has evolved to a point where that's where we are as a nation. Hmm. That makes sense? Um, yeah. The, I think throughout most of what you said – under the way that I had been interpreting the phrase "the law" my whole life, versus the way that you're you're defining right. it, it's tonight. a little it twists your brain around, right? Right. But I still so I was running both <laughs> I was running both those definitions on the things that you said, and I didn't have a have a have a problem with that. I think Alec and I talked about uh, you know so this was what nine months ago when I started the podcast. I think we we talked about um, that I had. Uh, heard an, an interesting uh, quip about um, uh, hate crime uh, legislation in that when the Supreme Court works the way that you just described it, in that the Supreme Court is doing nothing but validating popular opinion across the nation, that it can't, that the law, the law, let's see, every time I use that now, I'm right, yeah, it's tricky what I'm doing. So the, the law is not a helpful uh, implement, a tool of change because all the Supreme Court is doing is catching up with where society already is. And so when he was discussing hate crimes, and I could not find this reference, I searched for it like crazy months ago, um, when, when they were, when in the civil rights movement, as they were trying to locate, um, or as they were trying to use uh, legislation to push forward the civil rights, by the time right. um, enough people agreed with civil rights that the legislation caught up with the way that people, you know, so yeah. his whole argument against the effectiveness of hate crimes was that you can never hate get crime hate legislation, crime legislation right? passed yeah. until it's already what most people think anyway. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's counterproductive, he thinks, not to let the idiots say their hateful things and mm -hmm. just shun them as idiots um, that, hate crime legislation is, is not effective. I believe that was the, the podcast I was listening to. Right. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, we can talk about hate crime if you want. Um, so I think... The prohibition against hate crimes? <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that the reason I don't think a, a prohibition on guns would be effective today 
is because I think the the, the law and the, the way I use it in America is generally guns are okay. Now, shooting strangers is not okay, mm-hmm. but owning guns and, and having them is, is generally considered fine by most people in the United States. And so to, to legislate against that, I think, is just going to push it underground. And then you've made a lot of nonviolent people criminals, right? And you've created a great profit opportunity for those people who are willing to do illegal things in order to, to gain. So, so imagine with me a, a universe where everything I'm about to say was true. Let's assume that in countries that have gotten rid of their guns, yeah. right, that it is true. Let's assume that's true. Sure. That their mass shootings have gone through the floor in Australia right. and the UK, that their violent crime rate with firearms, obviously, is way down. Yes, now yep. when a criminal has a gun, it's a rare thing. And, oh, crap, now you need the special police, not the regular police, who aren't even don't even have guns. Right. Um, but it's so rare because as a society, you've stopped selling them on, in every corner store. Yeah. Um, that guess what? You have way less gun violence. And if you are in court and you tell a judge, Hey, uh, I, I'm being stalked by this, this, this crazy man who, uh, you know, I've told him to stay away and now I have restraining orders and he's still writing me these nasty things and I need a gun for protection. And the, the judge says, great, carry a gun and, uh, you know, do whatever you want to do. But that is less than 1% of the populace that mm-hmm. are. So imagine a world where we had way fewer guns and our gun violence dropped. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Right? Like, so even if the vast majority. So- no. Go ahead, Alex. I've been hogging the conversation. I I just, I want to give the anarchist critique, which is this idea that um, when people say, when people say they want to reduce the number of guns, um, I mean, I I suppose that's true. But, you know, so if you had your hypothetical state, I'm sure that it would have fewer guns on average. But it's, it's worth noting that you've just, what you've actually done is concentrated all the guns in one area. Right. Even if the average police officer doesn't have a gun, you've created a special class of people probably who are existing in a hierarchical structure who now have all of the uh, violent power. Yeah. And, and I think that that's concerning. Uh, sorry to rewind all the way back to when our conversation oh, okay. first started, but um, I made the comment that I thought there were actually two important bits um, uh, to your quandary. And you, uh, you, you, you clarified and you said consequentialist versus moral. And, and I, um, I'm an ethical nihilist, so I don't, I don't quite like that phrasing. I, I agree that, that in some sense, the first part was maybe more directly consequentialist, right? Uh, like, like, would it be effective to ban guns? But, um, I want to be clear. My, my second objection is also consequentialist, just in a different way. Whether or not we want to, um, engage in the banning, even if it's effective, is actually a separate question. And um so, and, and that's my point. And, and that would be one that would be one such objection I would bring forward. Um it, it, it seems that that could be a dangerous systemic thing. And I, I think I'm an ethical utilitarian, just to put my sure. stuff out there. So I think whatever has the best result is what's good. Well, how and, do you how do you quantify the best result? Just out of curiosity, collective utility, individualistic Utility, uh, where the yeah, individual is J. Yeah, okay. No, no, no. It's, it's, <laughs> no it's the yeah. collective of all the J's. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. All of this, all of this J. Yeah. No, I, I, I. So I know that the argument against utilitarianism is that individuals' rights can be absolutely trampled on. 
So you can go yes. in and you can kill a person and pull out all their blood if they've got magic O positive blood and you can save a thousand people with that blood. You can just go ahead and kill that person because the utilitarian argument says whatever's best for the most people, that's the way that's the way it goes. <laughs> and that obviously is really bad for that one person. And it's great for the thousand people. Right. And so that's the extreme case where the utilitarian uh Yeah. <laughs> So, but if, if I, we, I would argue that on the on the guns thing, if you got uh, if if the end result of prohibition is way le- fewer kids dying from gun violence, then that's good. And if it's just insanely effective and easy and permanent to hurt people with guns, and yes, you can still run around and stab people, but it takes longer and it's less lethal. Or so, I mean, so, okay, so so in your hypothetical, mm. right, where mm. nobody has guns and fewer people die from guns, and I, I, I guess that's good. I mean, I, I, would, if, I would... If you're a competition shooter or whatever, you can have a locker at the gun club and whatever. It's not that guns can't exist uh-huh. in society. It's that they're not in the in, general... In your perfect thing. world, they aren't on the streets. Right. Well, and in, in some parts yeah, of the world... Only the good people have them. See? It's easy. Yeah, if you just define <laughs> If you just right. figure out who's yeah. nice, and then it's right. fine. It's minority so, report. You, you know, just they're, need, they're, you need the technology to know who's going to commit the crime before they commit it, and you swoop down. Oh, <laughs> Man, we got... Okay, we need to write down our backlog of topics here. So, I, I would say there, there are places in something. the world where they just don't have guns, and it's just not part of their culture. And that works great for those countries. I'm just saying the United States is, is in a different place as a nation. We're a much bigger nation. We're a much more heterogeneous nation. We've got a culture of guns. Guns are in our constitution. I I heard that uh, even Madison said one of the explicit points of the Second Amendment is to keep the government in check, right? So that they always know, like Alex said, these people have guns. We can't just roll over. So how many people have to be killed by our guns before yes. we decide well, to... So, hold, hold uh, but, on, but actually, on a that's a straw hold man. Hold, hold okay, a second. So you, so you talk about, I want less, fewer people to die from guns. How about we just focus on fewer people dying, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So, you know, how they die is the factor, but, like, how about just fewer people dying, period? I mean, I think that's the real issue. I didn't have any time to look up any data, but... Guns have been around in the United States for a really long time. Uh, I think anecdotally we can say gun violence is up. I think we could oh, probably agree on that. Gun specific violence is up. Overall violent crime is down. I did look up. Okay, sense. you did. You did. I look did. It up. Yep, I did. Up since when? Since um, well, so the the, the particular I, I went to Wikipedia and I did a I did a couple of different things. I looked at um, gun uh, popu- like so percentage of the population that has guns, so guns per capita basically, mm-hmm. um, and which is actually a different thing. I looked at guns per capita uh, versus crime rate per capita um, in uh, all the the cities in the United States. Then I did states in the United States, and then I looked at countries in the world. Um, and uh, did you find anything? I did. I, uh, I I didn't find anything that I hadn't heard before from other people, but I wanted to I wanted to try to get a grasp on the data. So it seems to me that the data is very mixed. It's certainly true that if you look at the whole world, that there that you can uh, that there's a correlation, um, or I should say, there's an inverse correlation between guns per capita and um, violent crime, w- which is interesting. But that includes really? developing nations. 
And so um, we're, we're probably more interested for the sake of this conversation whether or not, um, you know, developed nations um, have guns. And uh, this data turned out, or I'm sorry, whether or not developed nations who have higher um, amounts of guns have lower violent crime. And uh, the data for this is a lot more mixed um, and difficult to find. I wasn't able to find raw data. Wikipedia didn't have... Um, didn't have good data about this. And I found a couple of um, reports that uh, pretty much everything I found made the case that this, um, there, there is a slight uh, inverse correlation. So if you, if you draw the lines between um, the, the 17 supposedly industrialized nation as defined by uh, OCED, I don't know how to say it. Yeah. Uh, then, it, then it, it turns out that there is a slight but almost statistically insignificant inverse correlation between guns per capita and violent crime. So if it's looking at all violent so crime, I, not just crime committed with guns, but but it's it's I, not sufficiently statistically significant that yeah. it would be a it would so, be a, so it's flat, right? I'm, Effectively flat. I'm yeah, skeptical of anybody that says they can statistically prove right the it, presence it, of guns either increases mm-hmm. or decreases crime. I think the, the world's just way too messy to sure. to know. This that is for this sure. is a general right. um, economics and sociological problem, right? Yeah. I mean, there's too many transitory factors. In an ideal world, you would you would basically clone the universe and put one policy in right. one place and one policy in another place. But there's no control group in the real world. Yeah, that's the problem. Um, so it, 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 it's <laughs> difficult to know, right? Um, the United States is definitely an outlier. If you if you draw that uh, that chart where you have the line, the United States is is the outlier in the in the in the furthest corner with the highest gun per capita, but still incredibly low violent crime considering how many guns we have. Um, That's interesting. Which is which is worth noting. Which yeah, supports well, your yeah, idea that there could the be something different about <laughs> United States culture. Yeah, and one of the things you said in the podcast that really bugged me is. Um, you mentioned, you know, lots of people die from guns, and it hardly saves anybody's life, right? Because the odds of walking into a gas station and finding a robber and shooting him accurately are just so fantastically low. I think it's, I would argue it's impossible to really know, because we don't know um, what crimes don't happen, right? Also, it's really easy to measure how many people die from gun deaths, Right, mm. you 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 look at the death certificates and you go cause of death, gun in face. Okay, so that guy died from a gun. So those are really easy to count. People that are saved by guns. Well, how you know how do you measure that? So a guy stops a robbery. Did he did he save the cashier? Did he save the cashier and the three customers that were in there? Did he save the cashier and the three customers and the guy standing outside? Uh, how many crimes just weren't committed because somebody thought? No, that person might have a gun. You know what I mean? I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying it's impossible to tell with any confidence. Are you arguing we need more guns? No, I'm not. No. Actually, not at all. I, I, I am, I am just as skeptical of people who say guns st- prevent crime as I am of people who say guns lead to more crime. My point is, it's just the measurement is so difficult. And like Alex said, it's so there's so many other things happening at the same time. It's impossible to isolate it, and we can't really use that as a legitimate argument for or against guns. I I agree. The statistical data is ambiguous, but I think you can make a pretty strong um, case for systemic forces that would maybe uh, end up working out such that more gun ownership leads to overall less violent crime. And the key is actually you're, you're, you're logicing through it, right? right. You're yes. not doing no, anything I, empirical. I with math. But, but this is right. But this is, 
this is the problem. As you said, I'm not sure that we, we can do that. Yeah. Um, but the, the systemic case I would make, and this is why I said earlier your response to my uh, my point about the state was a, was a straw man. And the reason that it is is that the state does not have to descend upon the public I, I for it to be. Oh, I'm sorry. So, so you suggested, um, you know, uh, I don't remember exactly what you said, but it alluded to the picture that's associated with the last podcast. You said something along the lines of, you know, how many innocent people need to die versus, you know, uh, governments being. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, overthrown which yeah. by the way one hello right right, right. Well, that, that, that's a good that's a good point but it's also worth noting that perhaps the government is less likely to overthrow a population that's armed like you have to consider we usually it, it kind of comes into this idea of opportunity cost except uh, it's sort of the other way around you have to consider the fact that if you have a group of people who could be armed under this is why i like concealed carry if you have a group of people who are generally armed and you aren't sure you're probably going to be less likely to it makes it actually makes your violent crime more expensive then you're saying governments would be less likely to engage in behaviors that would upset the people enough that they would want to overthrow the government right yeah, it is, it is. I, I could see that. Whereas the incentives work exactly the opposite way around if you imagine a situation under which you have a small minority of people having very powerful weapons. Yeah. And it's certainly the case, well, my buddy has lived in China for years, says, tells me that how it works in China is if you're angry at your local, local government official, right, and you own a shop, for instance, and people are coming into your store, you can complain about the government all you want. You can say, oh, that government, local government guy, he's the worst, and, you know, he's unfair and all this and blah, 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 blah. And they can listen to you complain, you can complain, you can say whatever you want. But you can't invite three people over to your house to talk about it. And you can't have a, you can't have a solution. You can't propose that anything be done. You can't have any kind of organization that might run counter to the Communist Party and sure. what they're wanting to. And he thinks that part of why that's true, part of why they just have to kind of put up with a lot of stuff in China, is is that they don't have any guns. Is your friend, uh, was he born and raised in he, China? He's American. He's American. He's been in China for okay. seven might, years, eight years. Yeah. I, I'd be curious to see the perspective of someone who grew up in China and then came to the United States, mm-hmm. see what their perspective is. Because yeah. I, I could just see you, uh, even though he's arguing my point, uh, I could just see, you know, you grow up in America, everybody's got guns, Americans are independent, then you go to China, well, they don't have guns and they can't, they can't organize. So obviously that's the problem. <laughs> so I could see it. But. So how do we, so the mass shootings break my heart. What do we of do course. about it? Um, Nothing. It, interestingly, I would say increase gun availability. Um, and, and the reason it yeah, doesn't have I, guns already, but well, I don't carry a gun actually. And I should I should point yeah. out uh, I I have zero interest in doing any of the drugs that occur are currently illegal, uh, hiring prostitutes, or even carrying a gun. I just don't think we should stop other people who want to. So anyway. Yeah, I, this the same kind of goes for me. I'm really boring. I, I recently turned 21, and Dave can attest the alcohol thing did not go very yeah, well. Yeah, he took a sip, and he's like, "Well, that's not for me." And he <laughs> went across the bar uh, and so, finished his Dr Pepper, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah so I, I don't think I'll ever really drink. I, I'm not. I'm not interested in drugs. You, we could go into it. I, I almost have a maybe maybe an irrational phobia of of, of that kind of thing. Uh, but and, you and don't similarly, think the should prohibit any of it. Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, so we're on the same page on prohibition in general. 
on most sure. things. I think well, so. and, and, and additionally, I, I, I don't own a gun. I'm, I'm also not very interested in owning a gun, but I recognize that there are positive externalities of people around me owning guns. Um, at least insofar as they're, 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 um, good people, if you will. Uh, but <laughs> well, I wonder how much of that is dependent on your socioeconomic status and the fact that you feel safe in your neighborhood, wherever it is you live, as opposed to someone who is on the bottom rung of the housing. Yeah. You, I mean, you have to, you have to be careful with that though, because uh, while that, that seems like an intuitive argument, um, I, I won't say that I'm, I'm connected with people of lower socioeconomic status in any particularly, uh, I, I come from a privileged background and, uh, but, but I, I do know somebody who, um, I can't remember the organization at which he works, but it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a private charitable organization where they go and they try to educate people in North Omaha to get them. And it, it's like a, it's like job training. They have a mm-hmm. small tech outreach program that they're working on now that I might uh, become involved in, depending on how that goes. But they have a couple of other jobs programs that they do. And um, he, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, tends to polarize people. Oh, I won't, I won't, yeah, I, I won't go into the details of where, where I stand on it because it's, it's a I complicated issue. I wish you all could see the look Jay's giving Alec right now. <laughs> it is classic. Wait, what? <laughs> but, 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 but he, but, uh, but he stands pretty, we, we were talking extensively about this and, and he, I think he's somebody who would self-categorize as liberal and I would categorize him as liberal. Uh, but, but as we were talking, he, liberal. Um, in, in the, in the, uh, like modern day, okay, normal, it. normal sense, as in yeah. he wants universal health care, generally more, um, gun control, unfortunately, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but he, he apologized this, this, this viewpoint to me that I, I really love because it parroted what I usually say in anarcho-capitalism. He said, you know, I, I think that there's systemic racism. I, I think that the cops are racist. And, and frankly, I'm to the point where I want to be able to pay for my own protection and not have to pay taxes. I would rather pay a gang patronage and be protected. Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned his name and said all of this. I don't know. Maybe this is not public information. But, but, but the point I'm trying to get across is I was like, yes, I think that that's great. I, I think that actually that is the only way we can keep powers like this in check. So is uh, to I, disable the public police force and to have the local whoever strong arm everyone else. That's for arbitrary amounts of money. That's that's the system. We want. Well, but what do you think? I mean, what do you think happens now? Do you think that taxes are? I mean, well, I you, you have to be careful what you mean by arbitrary right now. I, yeah. yeah. No, I yeah, mean, yeah. do you think it's it's I fairly what, what is fairly right. priced? We, we shouldn't have a system where the rich get the best protection in the safest neighborhoods. Yeah. That would be terrible. I think so. Did you sense the sarcasm there? We're already living in that world. No, I know. Yeah. Okay. And cool. that's bad. <laughs> well, but I know. But I don't think anybody's. I, I think I don't think anybody's um, saying that. I, I believe that actually, if you allowed market forces to distribute law, you would end up with a more equitable distribution and perhaps even a more nuanced approach. I should say legislation, perhaps instead of law. You would end up with legislation that more closely approximates law. To use, I love Dave's terminology. I've never heard that before, but I'm definitely going to adopt it. <laughs> the law. <laughs> Okay, so what am I saying? So he, so he is somebody who comes from a lower socioeconomic background. He's somebody who's actively involved in, uh, in that area, and he seems to have apologized the opposite viewpoint that you just did to me. You said, Alec, surely your, your safety is at least partially tied to the people, uh, whom you're around. And, um, that seems to be true for him as well, even though he's around people in a lower, lower socioeconomic, um, status. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna pretend to, understand what that situation's like but 
Yeah, I, I, I could see it being more nuanced than anything any of us would understand. Yeah, I mean, all you, uh, yeah, my ignorance is so, massive here. It's this. You're just that's flaunting the, that's the it. podcast. That's yeah. right, I'm flaunting it all over the place. You look at the crime maps in Omaha, and it's amazing how much violent crime is concentrated in North O. I mean, it's, it's insane. That's and yeah, I think that's a, a poverty issue. I that's what I'm more saying. Than, more than a gun issue. Yeah, that's what you I'm know, saying. I think. Well, but but I, I would argue that's a good time to start arming people. I mean, this is the thing. What what you know? What are the police going to do if somebody comes in here right now? Uh, you know what I mean? And, and shoots up. The place. Well, we'd be dead. Right, right. And that, that's the point. Um, I, mean, I mean, this is the question. Being able to defend yourself, especially in a dangerous area, uh, I, I think is important. Yeah, and I think any any person in society that shows that, hey, look, there's been 15 break, breaking and enterings, B&Es or whatever they're called, uh, in my neighborhood, and I don't feel safe, and I want a gun, and the judge can get them. Yeah, I think, um, I, yeah, so, so here's, here's the thing with that. I'm, I'm not so optimistic about, um, the, the way the system operates that that would actually happen effectively. Um, I'm also not so optimistic, especially about people in lower socioeconomic status to have the time and resources to go through that process. And I would argue that the state has a systemic tendency to make processes such as that lengthy and complex. So probably, probably for the, the sensibilities of the, 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 the privileged, right? The privileged people who never have to go through it. So right. is that argument? So this is maybe the first time this has entered my head. Is the, is the argument that, oh crap, there's a young woman living in an apartment complex and it turns out that, you know, four doors down or whatever, there's all kinds of, you know, bad activity going on. Mm-hmm. She feels very unsafe to go home at night. She feels that with her hand in her purse, that she's better able to defend herself against, you know, because she has easy access to go to a Walmart, go get something, and have her hand in her purse as she's or, going it's, home. It's a then, little bit. It's a little imagine, bit. Real quick, I mean, even imagine like a, a single mother working who, frankly, can't take the time off work to go talk to the judge, mm-hmm. right? Or, uh, okay, let's say the threshold is uh, 15 crimes in your area and there's only been 13 and she's the 14th. I mean, I've been terrified for a you know what I, mean? I was I was I was talking to a woman at a at a conference that I was at, and she had gotten a series of threatening text messages from a nut job, and she was afraid to go home. She was afraid to go home. That's she lives terrible. in the Bronx, and she was afraid to go home at night. Wow! And this was you know kind of in the height of my this was in New York shooting. City. That, well, she was going back she home lived. to yeah. the Bronx. Where yeah. it's very difficult to own a gun. I've heard. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything yeah. about the guns in New York, but I, I, and I, I feel horrible for her. And it's a great equalizer for, for women who are statistically less in, in, muscular in than your yeah. your wife or your daughter or, yeah. or whoever. My, it, it's really interesting. Uh, gosh, uh, what the hell? Let's go down the rabbit hole. Uh, you know, I've <laughs> I I remember reading an article uh, by some woman who basically said, uh, what was it called? Like Schrodinger's rapist. Have you seen that? No. Uh, it's a really interesting article where she basically says, hey, you're a strange guy walking down the street. I don't know if you're going to smile at me or if you're going to rape me mm-hmm. every time. And I asked my wife, I'm like, is this really what, like, is this how you think? Is this what's going through your head? And she goes, oh, yeah, totally. Absolutely. That's terrifying. I, I couldn't how can Im- they walk down the street if that's actually I, I couldn't imagine. Experience. I could not imagine having to, to deal with that kind of pressure. 
And so, yeah, to tell her, you know, well, no, you don't have the right to protect yourself because the police are around here somewhere and we don't want you hurting somebody. It's like, well, okay. Yeah, don't, don't worry, the rape won't be in vain. Right. <laughs> the police will take note of it and it'll go into the stats. Maybe more funding will come to the area eventually and yeah. other people won't be harmed. Okay, so right. what about the argument so that think, says... Oh, well, so go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. So, so I think to, the, to reducing the, the crazy violent crime where, you know, people are just shooting people up, Again, I didn't have time to do any research on this, but uh, I've heard anecdotes and people who are educated on it talk about how we're not handling mental health the way we should in this country, where if somebody's got a mental illness, they're not being identified and they're not being treated. And I think that's a, that's a health problem. And I believe most of these people that are doing these are genuinely just crazy people who should be either medicated or institutionalized or something to protect themselves and to protect society from them. Yeah, by definition, you've crossed that line. Which line? On that day that you go into a school and, <coughs> and blaze it up. Yeah, but I, I, I find it hard to believe somebody Hello. just snaps and in an afternoon decides to go do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe there are probably warning signs and yeah. things that could have been seen ahead of time. Now, it's really easy to see those things in hindsight, but, you know, we really need to look at people with mental health issues and say, it's okay to have a mental health issue, right. and let's treat that mental health issue and help you through it. Hopefully by destigmatizing right? mental Absolutely. health resources. Yeah. Um, it should be like the, a sprained ankle or a broken knee. Yeah. And I, the, Of course you need crutches. <laughs> yeah, the Mother Jones articles that I've read, I, I think, point to uh, quite a lot of warning signs in the mass shooter incidents, okay. right? But at the same time, we need to not jump all over, you know, every every kid with a clock saying that it's a bomb and a terroristic threat and all these things. So we have to we have to be careful. To yeah, I, I don't know the details of that story, but to, I sure feel bad for that kid. Yeah. Um, we have to be careful not to overreact to, quote, warning signs, end quote. Um yeah, in a in a way that uh, when most of these people won't ever do anything that right. horrific. So well, and I think the thing there is it's a it's a warning, right? Yeah. And it's plural, <laughs> warning signs. Yeah. So you know any one thing you shouldn't overreact to. Right. So you look for patterns or consistent behaviors and if or there things are, like that. If there are people in your life that have signs of of mental instability, right. That you should not you do? have weapons. They they should not have access to weapons. Oh my, yeah, my argument. So yeah, so my, how yeah. do you get them in a state? I mean, you know, if if you have a bad day and you own a gun, that can be a very bad day. And so, how how do you create a system where uh, it's it's possible to uh, correlate uh, people's uh, mental health status with their weapons accessibility? I mean, isn't that important you know if i'm if i'm on certain medications mm -hmm. uh is it or is it not appropriate that my access be restricted i, I, don't, I don't know yeah i don't i i have not thought through that question i i thought about it a little bit um i i, I would just point out that while that seems like a good idea in principle in practice um the issue of mental health and allowing access to resources based upon mental health uh, is contentious, especially historically. It wasn't that long ago that uh, the ADSM listed homosexuality, right, as a uh, as a like a mental issue that needed treatment. Um, so I, I just I want to point that out. 
Yeah, but if we can't, like, like how do we combat the the, well, the mass shootings? I I I have I have um, a partial answer, <laughs> right? Yeah. So so I mean, there's two First, there's there's we two get rid of the government, and then uh, <laughs> well, that would be ideal, but we can we can we can well, take steps. A, you had your perfect world. Give Alec his. Yeah, go you ahead. Know? <laughs> um, and it's it's closely tied. I want to address two things that you said just kind of as you were going, and then I'll, I'll go to this as the fir- the third thing. So um, back when we were talking about, uh, you mentioned the woman walking home. You mentioned the woman with the hand in her purse, uh, the threat of rape. Um, it's worth pointing out that in a world where guns are more accessible and there's a greater risk, it, it, so it, especially if there's concealed carry and you don't know who has a gun and who doesn't, uh, ex- so so first of all, the gun equalizes, right? Differences in strength. Um, you know what I mean? That that can you could have physiological limitations there, and also you could have to work really hard to build your strength. But but theoretically, just about anybody can get good gun training and be you know good at wielding a gun, right. or maybe even good at wielding a gun if they don't have training. Um, good enough to defend themselves at least. But we can't have three hundred million people all on air well, trigger alert, terrified that they're going to get shot that day. Well, but but this is the beautiful because thing: then they we, will get shot. We, that we day. don't it's, have to because because here if yeah. you. If you have a if you have a culture where concealed carry is accepted and normalized, this means that that actually accessibility goes away from even having a gun. The woman can literally just walk home with her hand in her purse. Mm. I, I would I would posit because the general risk that she is armed. Uh, do you see how that that's that's sort of a systemic benefit? And I would argue the same thing is true for the mass shootings. There's there's really two categories of people who are. Um, well, and and actually, uh, mass shootings probably fall into the latter category, which this would not help. But if you have somebody who's going to commit a crime and hope to get away with it, who's, uh, you know what I mean, concerned about losing their own life in the process, then the general threat that they will lose their life in the process is um, going to increase the cost of them engaging in that behavior and, um, you know, at least theoretically as a result, decrease their likelihood to engage in that behavior. Um, if somebody is willing to die in order to kill other people, then um, I don't have a good answer to that. Uh, but I think that's also rare. Hmm. So yeah, I think a, a, a couple things. I think it is normalized in our society. I mean, there's, I, I think they, I think the Nebraska State Patrol told me that there was like 40,000 people registered in the state of Nebraska with concealed carry, right? So yeah. that's pretty normalized. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of folks. Um, the other question is what what do we think about the fact that all schools are no gun zones right like they're i i think that that's uh that, that's that's silly because it seems yeah. to me that anybody who <laughs> i'm sorry I, I i shouldn't i shouldn't use words like that because it, it's uh, it's not it's not silly i understand I, that, that people want to protect children and intuitively it does make sense that if there's not guns the children wouldn't get shot the problem is i don't think there's anybody who is willing to kill six kids but is not willing to violate a no gun sign Sure. So, so actually, I, but do you so arm the, schools? The, the great yes. philosopher Chris Rock addressed teachers. this in his song "No Sex in the Champagne Room," mm-hmm. where have you guys seen that? Mm-mm. It's pretty I think hilarious. I heard it long ago, uh, he said, "Never go to a party with a metal detector because while er, while you're safe while you're in there, everybody outside knows <laughs> you ain't got nothing." <laughs> right? It's just a big sign that says these people are defenseless if you come in with a gun. Mm. Wow. That's really interesting. Which is how you end up with, you know, an armed officer at, you know, every school. I didn't even think somewhere. of it that way, but you're right. It does. It creates a, it, it actually creates a systemic, like, yeah, like, like draw <laughs> right. for violence. Yeah. That's, that's been the, the, the concealed carry proponents 
you know, have been arguing that forever, that every time you slap a sign on your establishment, you're saying, hey, this is a yeah, target. which I think, um, contrary to what I think some people would say, I think if you own an establishment and you want to put a sign up that says you can't bring your gun in, you should be allowed to stop anybody and everybody from bringing a gun in. And you like, can, absolutely. That's totally, that, that should be your right. It's your property. You should be able to define what people can't do on your property. Hey, they got that right then. That's right. the current yeah. law. Oh, of course. Of yeah. course. And uh, I... Yeah, but I think putting it up there comes with a risk, mm-hmm. right? If somebody's willing to violate that, they know everybody in here probably is unarmed. Right. Anyone working there can still be armed is how that works. Well, so, I, I'm just saying if, if you own a building, right. you should be able to decide who has a gun, who doesn't, whatever, 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 right? right? Yeah. It's it's totally your totally space. If, if I own my house and you come in with a gun, I should be able to say you can't bring that in. I think Missouri was uh, trying to pass a law which said that at the – pastor's discretion, churches could also be armed if the pastor wants them to be, yeah, which I, I thought was interesting. I'm on my in, church board. In yeah. Nebraska, churches are off limits no matter what. Is how the, the law is currently written. Churches are off limits no matter what. Oh, all government okay. buildings over all sporting events are off limits no matter what. All concert venues. Are they worried about people getting really all, upset at a sporting event? Like, ah! Well, <laughs> well, I mean, if there's soccer. really excited about sporting events? I'm just wondering what they're, they're thoughtless. Oh. I don't know, but that's that's how the law is written. Is that you you just you know the, there's a list that hmm. are no go zones. Yeah. And, this and yet can, those haven't been targeted, right? As far as I know, those have not been targeted for violence. Well, there were the I don't know what the laws are in North Carolina, but there were the churches that were targeted there. Mm-hmm. So that did happen. But. Well, it, it's also worth noting that if, especially if we're talking about somebody who's going to commit a mass shooting is supposed, and is supposedly snapping, it's not like, like the odds that there's They're a school rational. within your radius. Well, the, the odds that there's a school within your radius That's after you point. snapped is pretty low. I mean, it's pretty high compared to the odds that there happens to be an active ongoing sporting event. You know what I mean? At a comparative or it's distance. Sunday morning and there's a church nearby. Well, and these things are premeditated. Right. I mean, at least several hours, right? I mean, yeah. They, these are not, these sure. are not, I'm walking down the street minding my own business and then bam, I'm, sure. you know, that's not how these things work. Right. Made. And, and then of course, of course, if somebody's willing to die in order, well, yeah, if somebody's willing to die Which in I think order a lot to of kill people, yeah, yeah, it does, it does get hairy. I, I will admit that one gets hairy. Hmm. Right. Yeah, there's no way to defend that. The, the the news crew that just got gunned down. There's no way to defend them without like a full Secret Service detail. Because yeah. I, you, you can't. I mean, even if all three of them had been armed, it wouldn't have mattered. The guy would have gotten the first three. So, yeah, or at least the first one. Uh, but I, mean, I didn't have the drop of you so. out of nowhere. I mean, you're not gonna. Yeah, you're you're done. Yeah, I mean, it, it it would only work in a scenario where. You know, there's 20 plus, and they're going from room to room. That's we, where you could stop. Them. We just need an armed cop on every street corner, every single one of them. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> land. I I really liked uh, <laughs> Dave's comment about private land and the owner making the decision because this actually brings out a really important difference, I think, between um, between what I'll, I'll hopefully say our view and. Um, and, and maybe a view that would say uh, no guns. What we're really saying is is that we shouldn't generally prohibit guns. That 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 instead um, individuals should be able to make that decision for themselves. And perhaps if individuals want to get together and buy land and have a no gun neighborhood, 
you know, I, I think I think the systemic tendency would be such that that would be more dangerous and that would be a bad decision if that was indeed their goal. But I could be wrong. I would never be so arrogant as to say you that I should get to decide those. for them. Right. And and I mean, and, and sorry to get to the end of the anarcho-capitalist rhetoric, but I think that is the ideal world. The ideal world is not necessarily everyone in all places at all times can wield a gun. Um, but, but rather that we aren't generally prohibiting things and we're allowing voluntary association to decide these kinds of norms. Well, and that's, that's the beauty of the federalist system as well, right? Yes, that, that absolutely. You can do that. The, the problem and the tension in the United States is the right they, to bear yeah. arms is in the Constitution, right? So you, you <laughs> That doesn't not, appeal to me so as much. That, I know. Uh, yeah, I know okay, it okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm fully aware of that, yeah. friend. So, um, so... You know, you're in a situation where we've set out that the government will not limit your right to bear arms, period. And so that, that creates a lot of tension tension there. But I agree, if, if somebody owns private property, they should be able to dictate what is allowed on that private property. The other big thing that's worth noting, because I know this, I know this comes up a lot when we talk about gun law, specifically state-specific gun law, um, y- you have this problem of you know, you set up gun law in California and, and somebody, uh, you know, so, so California has comparatively restrictive gun laws, but Arizona, one state over actually has some of the, the most lax gun laws. Um, and so, so, so right there on the border, you have like the worst of all worlds. And, um, people from California will argue, look, we need a federal solution because what's actually happening here is we're bearing the cost of these people's, you know, to be bad, bad decision. Um, and private property totally solves this problem because if the owner who decides whether or not the guns, um, you know what I mean, are being wielded also decides access to the property in general, uh, you, you can, you can solve this really neatly. You don't have the issue of travel between states and varying laws. Yeah. I still think that some people are going to own all the private property <laughs> in the anarchist system, but that's my, <laughs> that's my bias. Uh, <laughs> Well, it, it, the thing is, is that proper, property is a social but, construct. If that really happened, you could um, people people could people could rise up against it. Yeah, I, but I I think Alex' general point argues against you know a national ban on guns. Well, yeah, the, right. The even individual states could have different laws that they wanted, and people could vote with their feet based on that. Yeah, the most powerful thing I've thought tonight that's new to me like the synapses i have grown the most are this the specific scenarios where the people who need it most in the urban areas right that i don't want them to be restricted and it doesn't work to try to put them through some kind of i gotta hire a lawyer and spend twelve thousand dollars to get a special permit under these conditions and the judge has to sign it and it takes a year and a half when this guy's you know threatening me through the wall yeah yeah i i need easy access to it that's that's the problem but if if everyone has easy access to them forever i mean and if i i don't know but my my understanding to back way up of the statistics is that we have a highly correlated uh gun violence and gun ownership rate that we're off the charts and off to send you the charts that i've seen and you can tell me why they're wrong um that does agree with what and I researched. If you're talking oh, yeah. about gun violence specifically, yeah, just before this, if you're talking about gun violence okay. specifically, okay. higher gun ownership per capita does imply higher gun violence. But when you when you open that up to all violent crime, it goes down. What you're saying is that there was no st- statistical correlation, is what you said for, right? for all countries. In the United the United States is an outlier where it does appear that it's there's a it's, lower it's down. 
there, there's a net, there's a right. So, so if, if you plot it out and you were to try to draw a line, there's not there's not a good correlation. But on that chart, the United States is all the way over here. We seem to have found the the best of both worlds in that we have a lot of guns, but we also have a comparatively low violent crime rate, considering how many guns we have. So, so, so like that line that isn't very well correlated, we're we're pushing it in the correlation direction. Oh, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, meaning that for the United States. More guns this does seem to apply. Means lower violent crime. Yes, is that what you're saying? Yes, and Again, I assume that lower violent crime per capita doesn't take in suicide. Like if we care, yes, it does not the, intentionally. Right, yeah, that's right. one of those things that comes so, up. Sixty-six so percent of, of the gun-related deaths in the United States actually comes from suicide. Right, and is that bad? Right, and uh, if I don't want to belittle suicide, um, but I, I think it's a different category of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to be clear, suicide's bad. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't. I don't want people. I'm not pro suicide. Uh, <laughs> I have all kinds of end of life things that we could talk about if you want. I would love to get into that because I, I have some really strong inflammatory opinions about that. But yeah. euthanasia. Yeah. But if uh, somebody wants to end their life and they can't get a gun, there's lots of other ways to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just. Could not believe that access to guns is a factor. But it's so right. convenient right. and it's so effective. Well, oh, yeah. that's, that's well, I very mean, popular. Yeah, yeah I mean, if so you're going to do it, you might as well do it quick and easy and yeah. fast, right? I yeah. Mean. yeah, it's it's really this interesting kind of thing. You can claim to care about the individual and say, I don't want you to commit suicide. So I, I would rather condemn you to, since you're going to commit suicide anywhere, a more slow and painful death. Yeah. I don't know if that's that's a, no, I, yeah, that's I the way know. I think about it. But Yeah. I, I um, just think it's interesting that that is a big chunk of the statistic that's not in I, there because it's not a crime. And, and Actually, it is a crime. It's illegal. Right? To kill yourself. Yes. Yeah, suicide's illegal, so why wouldn't that be violent crime? Has anybody ever been? Never mind. I, I know it. So, so <laughs> violent crime, especially when you get into internet, so even interstate, it's different. But um, it's different intercity, it's, di- it's different interstate, but especially internationally. So, so when I say violent crime, I'm referring specifically to whatever study the Wikipedia article was, was yeah. referencing. And it varies from place to place. They'll pick a normalized standard and then try to and I wonder, pour through the data manually. I wonder how they handle accidental shootings, too, you know, because there's a lot of accidental I would imagine that doesn't fall under violent crime. That would right. be uh, that, that would be my intuition, to look at, but yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, because that happens too. Because you're something like what ten times more likely well, and, to hurt someone you know accidentally. Right, right. And I'm all for responsible gun ownership, just like I'm for responsible consumption of alcohol mm-hmm. and educating people on the dangers of smoking or anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just not so worried about it that I want to say you can't have access to this thing. All right, so, so, so if we were all on the same page on everything except guns, that prohibition doesn't work, is there anything that we do want prohibition on? Like, do we want a prohibition on unlicensed drivers? Like, how come unlicensed vehicle drivers are a special case? Um, because uh, it has to do with state ownership of the roads. The state has a monopoly over the roads, but I think in any private market of transportation, there's sufficient demand for just general safety that any private owner would make it so that you had to have some qualification to be on the road. It's it's kind of a different thing. I, w- I would argue that uh, just to or, or do maybe some not. theorizing, even if you didn't have driver license laws, people would still generally be responsible and not put people on the road who weren't ready. Um, and we probably wouldn't have much more traffic or, uh, what am I looking for? What's the word I'm looking for? Vehicle Fatalities. accidents. Yeah, than, than we do now, right? Because if we just had property rights and the right to sue people 
uh, it kind of solves that, right? Well, if, not if they don't have money. I mean, if I'm injured by an unlicensed driver and they don't have any money, I can't sue them <laughs> effectively to to work on my medical expenses. Well, but that's, right, that's where but insurance could, comes in there for could, unlicensed. Yeah, there, there could be insurance, but there could also but be... But it can go both ways. But even if they don't have money, right, they've damaged your property and injured you, there's criminal charges there, too. Right, but that doesn't so, solve my financial problem that I'm in a... I'm, I need... $2 million for the rest of my life. Right? No, no, it, it doesn't. But what I'm saying is that those negative consequences are going to stop <laughs> people from engaging in generally stupid behavior. <laughs> I think I posted this on You know what I mean? On Twitter, yeah. I, I think I posted this on Twitter. I don't know if you guys saw it or not, but there is apparently a phenomenon in China that I had not heard of before where if someone hits a pedestrian uh, in their car, uh-huh. that they will intentionally back over them to make sure they're dead. Because in China, how it works is you only have to pay like twenty or thirty thousand dollars if you've killed somebody, but if you've maimed them or if you've you know made them unable to work or whatever, you're going to be you responsible pay their for, life for the rest wages. of your life. Oh. Wow! And so there have been all these cases where they have intentionally backed over the the, the people several times. So it's all about incentives that's, and well, economics, right? That, that's the problem when you put a, a specific price on something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's that classic case of the Israeli daycare where they had a problem with people showing up late to pick up their kids and so they had to pay extra hours for their staff because they were watching kids that people weren't picking up, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's this daycare, they're having problems with parents coming in late, so they said you know what, there's too many parents coming in to pick up their kids late Uh, we're going to charge them a dollar a minute or five dollars a minute every minute they're late. And you, you know, the problem got worse because it was like, oh, so you're okay with it, and I just have to pay you this dollar amount, right? You feel like Deal. it's justified, right? Yeah, it's like okay, we've we've well, we've, and that's that's their signal. We've negotiated the price, a price, right? right? So before it was just until they you stop doing it. Before it was just you feel bad <laughs> because you're being rude yeah. and inconveniencing people. Well, now they've just said, well, it's okay if you pay me this much money, and so people are like, oh, okay, I'll pay the money, right? And yeah, that's the same kind of thing. <laughs> And that actually brings up a really interesting point that I think is relevant in all violent crime. I'll I'll frequently say that violence is expensive, and it's expensive for a lot of reasons, but... um not all of those reasons are related to my my like risk of injury and in attacking you. Some of those are empathetic. Some of those are um, larger systemic reasons, right? Like if I'm perceived as a violent person, people probably aren't going to want to be around me. Indeed, uh, if enough people are concerned about it, they they might take me out because they would, you know, among themselves, rather just not have to worry about me. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, the question of Guns and violent crime. I, I think I think that's a factor as well. D- decreasing the yeah. access to, be, or decreasing the cost of violence. If decreasing, uh, how do I say this? Because you aren't decreasing the cost of all violence. You're, so you're decreasing the cost of, of guns, right? The ability to, at least the ability to commit a violent crime, is not the same as decreasing the cost of violence. Indeed, in some cases, it may be increasing it overall. And I think the general point you're getting to is the the reason. The 40,000 gun owners in Nebraska aren't running around shooting people is not because it's illegal. It's because they, they don't want to. Well, yeah, the, the, the people... They, they yeah. generally don't want to shoot and kill people. And that's what holds society together and keeps it all going is that law I was talking about where, like, even if it wasn't illegal, I mean, what would the neighbors say, right? Yeah. And so that's what's keeping us together, not a particular statute 
that's stopping someone or going to put someone in jail. Hmm. Boy, yeah, I I wish I knew what to do about uh, because it just breaks my heart. You know, the story is, you know, and it's every day, it's every week, you know, it's, it's crazy. And I, I don't know what to do about it because most guns that people have aren't hurting people. Right. And then, you know, lightning strikes, but it's not rare. It's, you know, multiple times a week. You know, it's crazy. I mean, you can look at calendar of 2015 so far and it's, I mean, and we're a big country. So I know that right. they, even if everything was 99.9% safe, that's still, you know, a lot of shootings. Right. But I mean, you can just look at the, the, I mean, it's mind boggling. And so it's, it's awfully hard not to think that Australia is not caught on to something in that they've had not a single mass shooting since they dumped their guns. Well, and I think, um, if you really want to get rid of guns, lobbying the legislature is not the way to do it. No, oh, I've, right. I've never had any uh, inkling of how any of this would ever be implemented, sure. even if it was possible or sure. a good idea. Well, it is. And I, I don't even know if it's a good idea. I don't, I don't know. It, it is possible, right? Uh, I is love <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I really? loved the story Hashani said about... Um, how he interacts with his son and he doesn't let him play video games where they shoot people. And he explains to his son how, you know, guns are for killing people and that's not something we do. That's not something we want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Right. You change society and then the guns just go away. And then one day you make them illegal because nobody wanted them anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that's how you go about effectively making that change. Not, going through the legislature and saying, I'm going to use my guns, the, the government's guns, to take away your guns, mm -hmm. right? That, that that just won't work. So if you, if you genuinely want to see that change, it's it's uh, your right and everybody's right to seek to affect the culture so that people come around to your point of view and, and maybe eventually they don't want guns anymore and maybe eventually nobody in the United States has guns and and that's how that sort of thing happens. Well, and that's the thing is that I I have guns and I haven't gotten rid of mine. I mean, it's not because I don't think that would help. You know, sure. I don't. I mean, all the people that that's I've ever shot with have never been involved in any violence of any yeah. kind. So maybe it's something other than the guns. Yeah. Right. 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 Maybe maybe there's something different going on than we just need to take away the guns. Right. But you know, what is that if if we can't yeah. stop spending a trillion dollars? On a, a fighter jet that nobody wants, <laughs> and if we can't stop, <laughs> oh boy, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're over a trillion. dollars. Do you want to talk about public choice theory? <laughs> we can. What, what is that? What is public choice theory? Uh, it's it's a it's a science and economics that analyzes legislators as independent, self interested actors rather than noble representatives of the people. Who thinks they're noble representatives of the people? Well, that's the you know that, that's the lore. <laughs> we, anyone under that impression? That's the lore we've all been taught as as kids, right? You know, uh, George Washington nobly served, and and Jefferson didn't want to be president, but he felt like he had to to help his country, which is bullshit. That's what everybody had to say back then to get elected, mm -hmm. right? But they 
that's that's the thing we say. You know, I am a servant of the people. That's that's how politicians project themselves, right? I'm a public servant. So choice so, theory. So public choice theory says bullshit. You're a guy who wants to do what's best for him. And I'm going to use that to try and predict your behavior. And well, yeah. it's, and and it's can, a lot more accurate than the other theory in terms of predicting behavior. You can chart their donor list to their voting record, right? You know, I... Mm, because my understanding is there? that 75% of Congress... So, yeah, spends, you're, you're, playing, you know you're playing with fire. You know um, what? Actually, here, <laughs> I, would, I would look at it the well, other way. Hold not, on. I, I would look at it the other way around. Uh, so last week or the week before, there was uh, a congressman who got all upset... Uh, because he was watching a football game, and every commercial break, these betting sites were being featured, mm -hmm. right? And he's pretty sure there's something fishy going on there, and they might be illegal, and so he's going to start looking into it, okay? So you, uh, hear me out. So you've got these entrepreneurs running these sites. You know, may, maybe it's not the, the the business your mother wished you were in, mm. but you're not. You're not frauding, defrauding anyone. You're not forcing anyone to engage in your service, right? You're dealing with people who understand they might lose money, and and you're providing them that opportunity. They're getting some emotional gains out of it, the thrill, you know, all that stuff. Mm. And this this guy comes along and says, "I'm pretty sure what you're doing is illegal." Mm -hmm. At that point, you have no choice but to hire a lobbyist to donate to campaigns, to start engaging in the political process just to protect your business. Sure. So when you say, oh, these big corporations are owning these politicians because look at their donor list, yeah. I look at it the opposite way and go, these politicians are extorting these businesses by meddling in their, in their stuff and forcing these businesses to engage in the political process so they don't completely jack up their business. Well, see what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't. I don't see that as a dichotomy. I right. see that as that's how the system works. And then on both sides. Yeah. Well, I, I guess when I hear people talk about what what you said, I think what they generally convey is, well, the the, the businesses are are buying the politicians, uh -huh. and I look at it the other way around. The the, the politicians are robbing the businesses. Now I think eventually they learn to like each other. Yeah, no, I think because it's a symbiotic relationship, it, it, and that's how it, it works. It becomes that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think it becomes that. Because the government has all the power, right? So you have no choice but to try to engage in regulatory capture yeah, I think, and I think, to influence the political process. I think the reality of our political system is that you have to constantly be fundraising, and it's insane how many hours a week they spend fundraising, not legislating, but fundraising, right? Yeah. And where do you get all your money from? Because you have to spend millions of dollars, uh, you know, to get elected into anything, and hundreds of millions to get elected president. Yeah, I, th I think that's a result of the government being involved in too many things, not of too many people being interested in what the government does. Well, I, I kind of see it. As, you see what I'm saying? Uh, well, I. I don't think there's a bad side and a good side, and a, I don't think there's a corrupter and a corrupt e. I don't think that's how it works. Okay. I think we just. I think the system is one thing, and it's self-perpetuating and self-reinforcing mm -hmm. to the point where you get to where we are today. With the, and maybe a system like a public-funded system, or, or you know, and, oh, gosh, no. and no. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, in England, they spend what is it six weeks? The entire election cycle in Great Britain is six weeks. Period. And our election cycle is what three and a half years. I mean, they they start talking about the 2016 election in 2012, right? 2013. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's crazy how much money is spent. Now, all that money is going to television stations and newspapers and whatever, and people are consuming that. And okay, that's employing people, and you know. But as, the, as long as there's any the people with all the money are buying the system, right? Right. But as long as there's any comparative advantage to being elected, which I think by because of the nature of the, the state, there will be. Um, how are you going to stop people from getting funding on the side? Oh, I don't know. I don't, how do or they do or it doesn't even have to be funding, just exchanging favors. The other yeah. thing, too, is you know, campaign finance form, campaign finance reform does not help one party or the other. It just helps the incumbents, right? Because the guy that's already elected has, I think it's like a, they've statistically proven, like you get a 16 percentage point bump just for being the incumbent, mm. right? So if you're already a congressman, boy, campaign finance reform sounds like a good idea because you don't want the other guy raising a ton of money because then he can buy a lot of commercials and a lot of advertising and, and overcome that. I thought Congress's incumbency rate was like 95% or something. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. It's almost impossible to lose. Right. Right? So don't you need a reform system to get any new patterns into Congress? But he's yeah, suggesting but, but that what the I'm finance reform is, would disproportionately the, advantage the incumbent. Yeah, the incumbent already has a huge advantage for being the incumbent. So you need more money from the other person to overcome that advantage. But we're passing campaign finance reform to protect democracy, which basically limits the amount of money that incumbent's opponent can raise. And the incumbent can raise. Isn't yeah, but the incumbent's everybody? got a built-in advantage already. Yeah. So if they raise the same amount of money... And I've got an advantage just for being the incumbent. I win. Campaign finance reform is great. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, the, because the experts in any given field work for business and the people who can go right. to Congress and talk to them full time mm-hmm. for a living. I was, was going to get into that too. It, by it, businesses. Yeah. You know, like how, well, because you, you elect people that are the representatives of the population. They don't, they don't know how the internet works. They don't know how tech no, works. No, of course it, they it, don't. Right? I, you don't expect them to. Yeah. It, it right? doesn't so, have Which to is be. why they shouldn't be involved in running it. Yeah. That's I mean, fine. That, that's I'm all for the, smaller government's fine with me. That's the, to, to me, that's the solution to the whole problem. You know, people complain, well, there's too much money in government. There's money, there, or sorry, there's too much money being spent lobbying and, and sent to the government and things like that. That money's being sent there because for those businesses, it's where they expect to get the best return. Right. Right? Because the government's involved in way too many things. Mm-hmm. Right? I spend zero dollars on lobbying. I pay no attention to what the legislature does because they haven't yet figured out how to regulate my business yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they haven't quite caught up. But once they do, then I have to send that money down there. Then I have to be involved with that just, just to protect my business. So if you want to get money out of politics, get the government out of all the things it's doing, and there won't be any incentive for the money to go there in the first place. See what I'm saying? Yeah. The, the more am- anti-corporatist way of phrasing that, I think they're both valid, is, is just, is just don't, make it so, don't make it such a valuable thing to buy. Right. Right. Yeah. In, and, and, and I think the reality, and this is, this <laughs> is the a, other thing. A much better way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, but I, I think, 
I think I think Jay is right, and I, I don't think that you were saying this, but Jay pointed out that, that, that those are two sides of the same coin. Yep. Those aren't those aren't a dichotomy. It's just looking at it from two people's angle angles, and I think that's really important. The other thing is, is I would argue that the the degree of of, of buying and selling that goes on the government. Um, um, uh, that sentence doesn't make any sense. That it's it's not all happening inside of the campaign, um, and that actually it's much more subtle. That it's that it's economic forces working together, and you yeah. hit you hit the um, you hit the nail on the head when you said, "Oh, well, these corporations, you know, they um, maybe maybe they can they can hire more people in a think tank, or they can hire a full time lobbyist," and. Um, I'm going to suggest that they don't even really have to try to do that. As a part of doing business, their opinions are going to be louder and and more well known, right? In the area, um, you know, sometimes this idea is phrased as um, as uh, as what is it? Distributed costs and concentrated benefits, yeah. right? So so here's kind of the crazy thing: there's corn subsidies in the United States. Everybody who knows about them thinks that they're stupid. At least that sugar I sugar subsidies. Oh, which is sugar? Part oh, of oh, there's both. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I was going to say oh, the farm right. bill in general is insane. Right. I, 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 I really have yet to meet the person who thinks that they're a good idea. But but here's kind of the crazy thing: you have, if you divide it out, it's like you pay. You know what I mean? By the time you look at the increased price, because you aren't taxed for it directly, it has to do with you know whatever transactions or something. Your the the, the cost of the average consumer ends up being under a dollar a year. But for the few people who receive that, they get enormous benefits. Right. Right. And. I'm not even suggesting that they're corrupt. People tend to respond to incentives, I would argue, and, and I, I think that they'll come up with reasons to defend that. And here's the crazy thing. Is yeah. it even worth your time to think about it for a few cents a year? Is it even worth your time no, to think not. about the arguments? Right. And, and this is the case for rational ignorance, which I think is the, the Achilles heel of democracy. Yes. It's actually in your rational self-interest to not engage in politics and unless you derive some kind voter. of, right, unless you derive yeah. some kind of joy from it. And, and that's the bigger problem. The corporations buying and selling the politicians is an inflammatory way of stating this deeper, um, what, what I would argue is a, fundamentally a market failure, actually. I do of think there, there are... Right, right. So, yeah. Publ- pu- the nice thing about public choice theory is that, um, I, I love it, especially as an anarcho-capitalist, is that it takes, you know, there's a lot of libertarians who like to talk about the free market, and they like to divide the state and the market, and um, I think that's it useful. the free market to the state? Right, yes. Yeah. And I, I, I love this view more because it's, it's holistic, right? Um, I, I don't think that there's really a, a division between the state and the market forces that I interact with on a daily basis. I think they're, they're intertwined um, and that they affect one another and that the same kinds of things, that individuals as rational, self-interested uh, actors responding to incentives is a good way of looking at all human behavior, not just the part that happens to not fall into the state realm. Hmm. So, so yeah, I think the state is a market failure. Yeah, but I, I do think there are things that could be done structurally to address some of that. You know, the distributed costs and sure. concentrated benefits. But, but here's kind of the crazy thing. The structural like incentive is to not do them. Oh, yeah, I know. That's part of the market failure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. It, and just, just so we're clear, the, the working definition of market failure I use is that um, it's, it's, uh, you, have, you have an action which is in the rational self-interest of all individuals to partake, and yet all those who partake in it end up worse off. So an example would be like traffic. 
I'm not a traffic theorist, but um, I've, I've been I've, I've heard at least we'll assume that it's true for the sake of this argument that um, traffic conditions are exasperated by people following closely on the road. It has to do with like the reaction times and you stop longer and it backs up the traffic. So we would all get to our destination more quickly if we followed at a safe distance. But each actor who's on the road is incentivized to, if a space opens up, cut in front of the person. And so everybody ends off at their destination in, 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 at a longer time, even though each person wants to get there more quickly. And there's ways of solving this. I want to be clear. Market failure just applies to the actors actually engaging in the situation. A third party could come in, like the owner of the road, and say, we're going to enforce rules about following distance mm-hmm. and decrease that incentive, and everybody ends up better off. But um, that's worth pointing out. And that's actually usually an argument in favor of state regulation. The problem is, is that um, since the state itself suffers from several really fundamental market failures, you get into this problem of who watches the watchers. And, and I would argue that, that, it, that while it'd be nice to have a benevolent, right, a benevolent deity who could, well, roughly equivalent to a deity who could come in and fix the market precisely in situations and everybody would end up better off, that, that, that doesn't, that doesn't exist. That, um, because of, of market failures in other areas, you won't quite get that result. And the best way to approximate that is actually with the market system itself. I thought it was a Google Cars. I thought we just put Google Cars on the road and we're done. That will overcome it. Sure, that would be yeah, that'd be another way. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be. I, I always wonder on the interstate when I'm stopped, who was the first person in this line to just come to a complete stop? Like how how did that happen? Well, you know I, what I mean. It's I've, just I've so seen, like well, the people that witnessed the accident up front. If you've ever been close to that, oh geez, that's bad. And I assume I that's how it. Never seen that happen. Oh, you've never seen an accident actually happen in front of you? Oh not, no, not on the interstate. Oh, it's bad. Because bad. not only are you terrified for the people who just got in the accident, but you're now terrified you've got, for you and all the yeah, people coming. You've got people coming at you 70 yeah. miles an hour. And if you're on a motorcycle, holy crap. <laughs> Motorcycles scare the crap. Oh my god, out they of should. Me. They should. I, That's how I'm still alive, is that I'm terrified of them. I actually. <laughs> I'm riding one if day. there's a motorcycle in front of me, I drive so far oh, yeah. behind them. I just try to get you. away from them. Thank you well, very much. Really, really, what it comes down to is. I don't want you to screw up yeah. and cause me to accidentally murder you. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, I just can't handle the guilt. I'm yeah, not yeah. interested in it. Even though it's your own fault. I, I, well, it I might not be. No Somebody might it. not see me and swipe into me. And, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Even if my tire it, might blow. Or, even know, if it's not my fault. Right. I don't want to be responsible for I, your death. I hear you. So it's a lot of paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big guy. I'll hurt your car. <laughs> I'll so I'll screw up your trans your transmission on the way under your Ah, uh, it's a Honda. They're designed to just crunch anyway, so I'll get a new car out of it. I'll get all kinds of wedged up in your under yeah. undercoating. <laughs> wow, okay. Well, that's an hour twenty one. How are wow. we doing? How are we feeling? What was this? Was this prohibition take two? Or what what did we just do? You know, we we kinda wandered around all over the place. Uh, um, and we didn't even get to the smoking thing. Smoking. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Right? I was uh, really disappointed in that part of the podcast. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was I, I was disappointed. Well, give me the better version of that. Um, I just... Uh, you don't think that bars... I don't think that we should have smoking bans is, is the short answer. I think that too frequently this issue gets framed. We've, we've talked about this exact thing as... as <clears throat> pardon me. As smokers' rights versus non-smokers' rights. Huh. And that seems like a very odd way to phrase it. Instead, it should be about the property rights of the individual who, you know what I mean, has the, um, 
who owns the bar. Yeah. And and it's 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 worth noting. I I should I just sort of fell into the thing that I think is at the root of this. You'll hear people talk about well we have to balance religious rights versus gay rights, or we have to balance smokers' rights versus non-smokers' rights. To be clear, I think that rights should be the same for everyone. And if you need to put an adjective in front of it, that that seems to me that I can only limit the rights available. Mm-hmm. So. Um, just that that whole approach to the situation, I think, is, is kind of so. So how do you re- how do you respond if 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 a non-smoker wants to be able to go to a bar and all the bar owners have the freedom to choose or choose mm-hmm. smoking or not smoking or and he can't, he can't go to or a prostitution or whatever they want to choose and about their bar. So so, so, so <laughs> let me let me ask you this: yeah. if a, if a non I'm sorry, this is the this is the anarchist rhetoric. I'm sorry to put you through this, but so w- would you say that it's okay for the person who's not smoking to Physic to threaten the owner of the bar with physical force. No, you're just doing it several steps removed when you get the state involved. Right. I, I so so my answer is fundamentally. I that's too bad. Hopefully, there's enough people. Like I would I would I would hope that that people can get what they want in general, and there's enough people around that there'd be enough market demand to create the bar. But if it's a small town and there's only one bar and it's filled with smoke, and you're the only guy who moved in, I don't think that you have the right to to threaten people. To get access to that bar, and it's worth noting that I think that overall everyone would be worse off as a result. Well, worse off with regard to each of their individual subjective utilities, right? B- because because when well, you when you when you use force to reallocate those resources, uh-huh. I would argue that's suboptimal, right? The bar owner wanted to satisfy the most people because he was interested in profit, and now you've 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 misallocated the resources. So I, I know you don't want this, but I want this. I want universal health care, single payer, mm-hmm. right? So I can understand how (laughs) I I, I don't, I don't think that's optimal, but I can understand how given the current system, you might want to transition to that. Yeah. Yeah. So so given, and I know that's the end of America as we know it, our our great nation, but um, it, once we get there and we will get there, it's just a matter of time um, in an environment where smoking is. uh, Yes. No. no. Oh my God. You're, yes. You're, go ahead. I've literally talked about this before. Um, I, I, Sorry, we should let Jay finish. Oh, yeah, no, go ahead. No, we shouldn't. Go ahead. No, no, well, this is a real thing. Go ahead. If, if we're going to have oh. universal... Wait, okay. should, I, should I tee it up so you can knock it out of the Yeah, yeah fin- finish it up. Let, let <laughs> well, it here's, finish. It, given, it, you know, mm-hmm. and I know you don't want this, but I want this. Yeah. So when I want single payer and I want health care and smoking costs us $72.4 billion a mm-hmm. year in you know medical, whatever, and I know that I can... Ban smoking in bars, for instance, and millions of people stop smoking because now it's just a pain in the ass, myself included, because I quit smoking for like 12 years and I started up again this year. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't smoke if I had no social pressure to smoke ever. And I'm weak and, you know, it's my own fault. It's not their fault. But anyway, um, if as a society you can save $72.4 billion just by uh, banning smoking mm-hmm. in bars. Yeah. Then the utilitarian in me says, "Great, seventy-two point mm-hmm. four billion dollars we can spend on schools or whatever." Can, can I come yeah. at it from the same utilitarian? And maybe we don't need schools. I'm, I'm not convinced that we need schools, but I do think we need single-payer healthcare. Let, let me come at it from the same utilitarian um, place and get get a slightly different result. Although you're, you're actually pretty close. So, so if we're going to have universal universalized healthcare, you're right. We have this problem of externalities that's been introduced. This is the this is the people, people say they need to get the state involved to solve the externality problems, but it always seems that it creates so many other ones. But if you have universal health care, you're right. Your decisions about your health fundamentally start affecting people around you in a very economic way. Yeah. So um, 
in, in general, I would say banning smoking is probably, it, it may be the right answer. It may not be the right answer. It could turn out that everywhere at all places, it's not cost effective to have, um, to have smoking compared to alternatives. But we actually don't know that for sure. So what I should, I would say you would, you should do instead is, um, have a, have, so look at the average cost that a smoker, um, generates for you, um, when, when he, you know, when he requires medical care for his habit. And then look at like how many cigarettes he smoked over his lifetime to get to that point. You know, multiply it by the, the you know the the relative risk that he'll even use the healthcare system at all. Yeah. And then take that cost and turn it into a, a, a sin tax yeah. for smoking. And then next year do the same calculation again and adjust the tax and the cigarettes will go up slightly. And you, but you'll and 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 what if you could do that perfectly, you would be approximating what the market system does automatically. But now only rich people can afford the cigarettes, right? And then. You know the poor people can't afford it, and isn't that unfair? And the, our society. And yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I didn't say it was optimal. I'm saying yeah, I think it would be better than banning it completely. And, and remember, the the other option that we just talked about was making it so that <coughs> both rich and poor people can't have access to. You know, this comes back to. And an, I think that sorry, I, I think <coughs> yeah. the whole argument that well, rich people can do this and, and right. poor people can't, and that's not fair, is just a. It, I, it's kind of a red herring, right? Rich people can already do a ton of things poor people can't do. <coughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the reality of having more money, right? Well, right. No, but it, it, and, and the government getting involved in saying who can do this and who can do that is not making that situation any better. Rich people will always have it better than poor people. The government can't fix that. No, I know. And and there's a, just there's saying a, taxing the crap out of tobacco, right? So that well, anyway, yeah. Well, but ahead. there's also there's also a deeper issue here, <laughs> and that, and that is that this idea of. Um, I, so privilege is a, is a is a very useful sociological concept, but I find that in general conversation, it, it confuses topics because privilege tends to, when people bring up privilege, it tends to somehow become a race to the bottom. Um, the, the issue is not that some people are privileged. The issue is that other people are oppressed. I mean, you know what I mean? Privilege not that is... some people are rich, that some people are poor. Right. Yeah. You, you hit it. Uh, th- this idea came to me from Dave. Mm-hmm. I generalized it. He, he mentioned it during his talk specifically regarding economics, but I realized that it's actually, as it tends to be the case with economics, true about everything. And um, I think that's the case here. The fact that there may exist rich people with better access to tobacco when the alternative is that you have no access to tobacco. R- right. I mean... No, the, if, yeah. if your goal is that people have access to tobacco, I don't understand how taking it away from rich people is making you. I would argue that it's actually making everybody worse off, and all it's really doing is is satisfying your sensibilities without actually helping. Well, the reality is, you you try to tax the cigarettes, and there'll be a black market for cigarettes, and there'll be no taxes paid on those cigarettes. Sure, right? this this if, would be, if the price were high enough. Yeah. And, and cigarettes, cigarettes yeah. actually are not that big of a deal compared to something like, um, you know, like a calorie tax maybe, or or a, or a fat tax or a sugar tax, because um, you, you know what I mean. If you look at the obesity epidemic or something like that, I mean, how far do you want to go to start molding people's habits so that they can't externalize their cost on everyone? Me personally, I, I would rather not be penalized for my obesity things. So. <laughs> well, well, and, and the, and yeah, cigarettes <laughs> screw those guys, right? Well, yeah. but here, here's the thing: no, I, like the cost will go somewhere. Yeah, no, I had this. I had um, the same reaction when a, a company that I was working for a long time ago, their HR department got involved in the, their employees' health so they could reduce their health costs. And I'm like, what the crap? That's not fair, blah, you know. So I have the other side of that whole, you know, universal health care. Uh, actually, I think too. that's fair. Because you can go get another job, right? If you don't want that as part of your employment contract, 
you can go out well, and find some place that, this, that wouldn't do that. Well, not if they all do that. Which well, is back to the same. Hey, a, a all flaw. the bars are smoking bars. I, I think a flaw in the United States system is that we have this cultural norm of, health, of um, employers providing health care. Right, yeah. Which, and it's which actually comes from price fixing during yeah. the Second World War. I, I read that that's a myth. Okay, well then never mind. That's a libertarian <laughs> myth. Um, but it is. <laughs> Sorry. I, I found a paper a long time People ago. People say it a lot. <laughs> but, but actually, I, I found a paper that said that um, companies offering healthcare was already happening just in the competitive employment marketplace. Now, the price fixing could have accelerated it, but it was occurring before the the wage and price fixing of the New Deal. Yeah, NPR Planet Money but, did did a thing on this, so I'll, I'll link to that one. Yeah. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. But it is reinforced through the tax code right okay. now because uh, employer-paid health insurance is tax-deductible. So that's, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so do you think that in a, in a completely open market of healthcare, we would end up with a similar system where we have employers providing healthcare to employees? I think in, an, in a competitive employment market, that's something that would probably come up, right? As you're, I, as you're seeking in, in out my, the best in, in, my, in my mind, though, I think that you could always take the money that you were spending on health care and give it directly to the employee. Absolutely. And then the employee would have more choice. And well, so you this could is, always, you could it, always, well, but you could always. It doesn't seem like it's in the. You could always give the money to the employee and they could choose to go buy sodas. Or they could choose to go buy their own beer or get their absolutely. own snacks. Right? Absolutely. But at some point, it's just cheaper for the company to say, hey, enough of our employees want this that we're just going to provide it. And rather than giving you the money and giving you the option, we're just going to say this is a benefit available to everybody that works here. Well, but, but I, I, think, I think you're hitting at the key. I, I think that we've been more or less, and again, this, this could be wrong. I've been operating on a false, okay. to form this opinion. But I, I, I've been under the impression that we've been more or less indoctrinated into wanting it. Um, the, the reason that employees demand insurance from their employer is that that's the expectation here in the United States. But I don't, I'm not sure that that's, that's, that's actually a good, uh, solution from a, from a utilitarian standpoint. Uh, you, cause you change your that. job throughout your life, but you would probably want your health insurance to be tied to you specifically. And you hit, you hit, I think you hit the, the nail on, the head There's a the lot hammer. of nails getting destroyed. Right? Yeah, when, when you said the employee could spend it on something else, and you're absolutely right. That to me is additional value. Um, now, I, I would I would probably want health insurance, but right. maybe not everyone does. And so the fact that there could exist additional flexibility, it seems that that would nudge the market um, in that direction. Yeah, um, you know, as an employer, I think a lot of people just don't want to think about stuff. Mm. So, for instance, we're it's true. I yeah, you know, we're downtown, right? Mm-hmm. And we pay for parking for everybody who parks downtown. Sure. And the way we pay for parking is probably not the cheapest possible way we could pay for parking. So, what I could do is I could say, okay, everybody, you get this much money to cover your parking if you come downtown, and let people sort out the cheapest place to park, or maybe even park six blocks away in some free parking lot or something like that, sure. and all that. But I don't want all that. I want people to just come here and focus on working. Right? I don't want you thinking about, I don't want you spending your brain cells thinking about, okay, what's the most efficient use of this money that's been allocated to me for parking? Mm -hmm. I want you to think, I need to park and get in the office and work. So so I've chosen to to do that. Same thing with, um, you know, one Thing that's well, interesting. Pop in the office might be the same kind of thing. Pop in the office, but you know, one thing that's really interesting is 
uh, when people say, does your company offer benefits? 99% of the time they're asking, do you have health insurance? Right. Mm-hmm. Or you could argue uh, short-term and long-term disability insurance is actually a lot more important than health insurance. Right. If you get, if you get sick and you have to stay home and eat chicken soup rather than going to the doctor and get an antibiotic, you're going to get over that. But if you get permanently injured and you can't provide for yourself the rest of your life, holy crap, that's bad. So when we offered insurance, we just said everybody gets disability insurance, period. (coughs) We're going to provide that no matter what. You get that, Um, even though nobody's really asking for it. And and we offer health insurance, too. But we look at that and we go, just to to keep it simple, we're just saying we're going to give you this because this is what we offer as an employer. And you don't have to think about it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to look at a cafeteria plan and make a bunch of decisions. You just say, you know what? My employer's got my back. I've got good insurance, and you focus on getting your work done. Does that make sense? It, it does. It does make sense. And please don't take away my insurance. But um, <laughs> but don't worry. I'll compensate you for it. You're right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe you'll get a lower right. rate someplace. You're a young, healthy guy. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and and I I, um, I I definitely understand what you're saying. Yeah. I think the health insurance is a little bit different than the parking because. Um, with, with the parking specifically, I don't, I would not. You won't con- need parking when you don't work there. Anymore. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this is kind of the thing. I, I totally get your, right. your argument from the standpoint of like people ask about benefits during hiring. If we want to be competitive, we need to provide it. Right. And your argument about people not having to think about it, that's really interesting. Um, I, again, so I wonder if this is, if this is not a case of first mover advantage or as I like to call it behavioral inertia, right? Like, like the fact that there's demand for people to not have to think about health insurance maybe means that health insurance should be, that health insurance was offered should, right, should be simplified. But the reason that it's not being simplified is actually that employers are basically subsidizing the complexity. So we actually have a market inefficiency um, because because like comparatively there's oh. there's a greater advantage if you specialized in just building simple health insurance plans okay. or helping people not worry about things. But instead we're bundling these two things together, and I could be yeah. totally wrong. But because the health insurance is longer than the relationship with the employer, presumably, right. I, I don't think that that bundle is efficient. Yeah, um, and, and really my argument was just it's possible. Right. Oh no, you're right. It you could know, be. I could be completely but, wrong. But it is reinforced yeah. through the tax code, and we did have the wage and price fixing that happened with the New Deal. I thought World, that was a myth in World War II. No, the wage and price fixing was real. Okay. Right. So what was the myth component then? That employer offered health coverage happened after that wage and price fixing. Oh sure. So it was already happening in some places. It was that. already happening in the competitive employment market before that. Now, who's to say how it would have evolved if that wage fixing had? Sure come up. Who's to say how it would have evolved if there weren't tax incentive in, incentives in well, place? And so like if I if I pay for your health insurance, mm-hmm. nobody pays income taxes on the money I use for your health insurance. But if I give you mm-hmm. money and you buy your own health insurance, yes. you pay income taxes on it and then you pay buy insurance with that post tax money. So there's a structural incentive there, you know, it's cheaper for you to have me pay for it. Basically, right? right? And yeah. it's cheaper for me for me to pay for it and to compensate you with the same amount of coverage. Yes. Right. So, so it's definitely being nudged along by the government in, in a certain way. So it's, it, it's, it would be a, a, an interesting thought exercise or, you know, like you said, we'll never get that counterfactual, what it would look like if that weren't in place. 
Right, because of all the transitory things. Like, right. we, can't, we can't clone the universe, change this one thing, and then see what happens going forward. You would think, you know, like, if the government, if, if the universe were implemented in LISP, I feel like this would be possible. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe if I get some, if we get enough listeners, then I can get some ad revenue and I could do that. I could fund the cloning of the universe. That would so, be amazing. That would be amazing. Let me, quickly, maybe. The problem is, how would you compare it to a universe that evolved <laughs> without the ability to clone itself? The Google cars anyway. do that. That's amazing. <laughs> the Google cars do that. Yeah, it's built in. Really, really quickly to, to hit the when I think everyone's leaning pretty hard libertarian uh, tonight, and what I what I'm trying <laughs> what, to, what what gives you that impression? What I'm trying to understand is what do you do when if when the the market the free market doesn't serve um, when the reality of the the I think I asked when there's market failure here. yeah. When it's when it's simply not available. When I when I have a concern about a thing, and yeah, other people like me should be concerned about that thing, and therefore there should be enough of a market there that that something exists that I that we can uh, use, but it's not there, right? So uh, uh, that's where the entrepreneur comes that, in. That's ideally. what I was going to say. Yeah, that, that's, that's that's the role of the entrepreneur, and the, the, yeah, the, the beauty of capitalism is actually that it creates this role. So if there were enough, argue, the role of the entrepreneur the is to find those market failures and take advantage of them. Yeah. So right. if there were enough well, people in, that in, were inefficiencies for non- too. It doesn't have to be market failures. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, Just general point. inefficiency. Yeah. If there are enough non-smokers looking for a bar, then hopefully someone would go, "Hey, there's a bunch of non-smokers that would prefer but, but, to But but it's worth noting that if that's not the case, I don't think that person is entitled to a non-smoking bar. Right. They're just just pointing that out. And I think for those people who wanted to get rid of smoking, it was cheaper to just go to the city council or go to the state legislature than it was to open a non-smoking bar. Another big problem that you have with democracy you know what I mean? is, sure. is tyranny of the majority, sure. which is which is a, a real thing. Which <laughs> sure. also, so, to, to yeah. be fair, does happen in the marketplace as well. Um, it, it does, but it's, but... it's less, I think. Yeah, but but there. But I, I would argue that there's there's better systemic things that that um, that move against it. When you when you have a state system, particularly, I mean, so this is going to turn out to be a case for federalism. I would argue it could go all the way down, right? Okay. But the reason we would tend to want to make laws on the state level versus the federal level is that there's differences between people, and we don't all have to agree. Yeah, absolutely. D- democracy has this way of, of of putting people in the mindset of well, we we need to come to a conclusion and all go that direction. And I just think that that's not the case. Well, that gets to the whole idea of like, there's no such thing as the will of the people. Right. Absolutely. Right? There's there's no such thing as this one thing that all the people want. Sure. Sure. Right. Right. So, so maybe the answer in a libertarian universe is that you just don't get your non-smoking bar tough shit. <clears throat> when sure, but when, when it's more or if you or when if we're you, all humans, you really want your non-smoking bar. Go open your non-smoking bar. Don't yourself. Don't force the guy. Who owns a bar to prohibit smoking? Right. right. If you have the money to do so, if you have somehow the wherewithal, the the, the business acumen, the whatever, the rich parents, whatever, if, the money. And sometimes, do. if you just care enough. Yeah, I mean, you could start with a, the, the, like a big cardboard box bar. Right? The fundamental. And, you know, I could open a non-smoking bar tent. in my garage. Right. right. Sure. Right. The fundamental problem. I don't know how you get a ten thousand dollar liquor license, but we already eliminated that. Well, okay. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, we eliminated that. so maybe the there problem is no the ten thousand dollar liquor license. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So when though the it's not just whether or not I'm happy to a non-smoker in a bar, but now it's hey, uh, this is life and death medical insurance problems. You know, like like I have, I have this bleeding heart thing that says that 
healthcare is different from all other things. And if you want to own, uh, you know, 17 uh, new Apple Watches, great. You go earn money and you earn 17 Apple Watches. But whether or not you can afford, you know, some kind of a cancer treatment or uh, basic fundamental health care, it seems to me, is, is different from that. And sure. so this is completely opposed to the the libertarians just tell me to, you know, take a hike and <laughs> I don't you know. I don't think we do. Do you really think we do? Um, I, I, I would I would be very I don't think I've yet encountered the libertarian who makes the argument and if you're poor, that sucks for you. You die. I think that's a common yeah. straw man. Um, but that I I really don't feel like I've encountered that, at least in my experience in the libertarian community. Libertarians usually argue that at, and we, we go through all kinds of hoops to do it, but that actually the state is less efficient than what would happen if you just had people voluntarily helping. The fact that you're concerned and the fact that there's enough people concerned, it comes back to that idea of the government's behind the people's will. The government actually lags behind the people's will. And I, I would argue that I'm a cold-hearted person. That's worth noting. I'm a very cold-hearted person. It's and true. so um, I, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't... I don't think that I could ever be involved, like, like, in, uh, you know what I mean, in North Omaha individually. I don't think I could ever be involved in, in counseling. Um, I don't think I'd be a very good job trainer in general. I, I, I just, I don't think I'm good at those kinds of things. But, um, that, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that I, I don't care, right? So if there's charitable organizations and I want there to be good done in the world, I can, I can give money to those people who are performing well. So you can see how there's sort of a market for charity. And it's important to note that what makes capitalism work is not that people are compelled to be benevolent, um, or the other way around. It's not that people um, are assumed to be benevolent, but rather that they're more or less compelled to be benevolent, or benevolent means maximizing individual utility. And and so what's keeping these charitable organizations in check is is the fact that um, well, well, it is true. There's people, you know, presumably, but like, what's stopping evil, you know, evil people from getting together and saying like we're actually helping people when they aren't actually helping people? And it's theoretically the fact that there's 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 people who could withdraw their support at any time, and so there's there's money there keeping them in check. Um, I happen to know the figure. Um, so so uh, only 43% of the money set aside for social programs in the United States actually makes it into the hands of the recipients. Wow. The rest is lost to overhead. Compare that with something like the uh, the Hope Center for Kids, which is a charity um, in North Omaha. Uh, my dad's on the board for it, and I know that they're um, – I can't remember the word for it, but they have 90% efficiency basically from the donations. And they report that because they're, they're constantly campaigning. They have galas. They're trying to attract people, and people who care can do that. I would argue the state gives people a false sense of security, that it decreases involvement in the community. Um, and, and, and that we would be, we'd be better off if we didn't compel people. Yeah. Precisely because people like you care. So I think, uh, to, to answer your question, you know, we, we do need to care for those people. And I think we can figure out a way to care for those people. One thing I would clarify a little bit is that capitalism is not about maximizing profit. Capitalism is about being able to own yourself and your property and pursue whatever ends it is you want to pursue. And, and, um, People are complicated beings, and they care about social issues. They care sure. about each other. They care about how they're viewed. Um, they care about other people. So as a capitalist, I've got a lot of motivations going on, not just how do I maximize my income and, and my profit. Um, I, I apologize. So, I, by profit, I meant, I meant all of your subjective values. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm sorry. Exactly. So maybe yeah. I wasn't clear about that. 
Yeah, no, I just yeah. wanted to, okay. to, to that, clarify that's fine. a yeah. little bit. I think and, there's and a so wide there's, range there's, of capitalists that have a wide range of yeah. uh, giving a shit about anyone else. And, and there's, <laughs> a, there's a great uh, guy named Mike Munger who is an economist who teaches political science, which is such a great combination. And he says uh, homo economicus is a sociopath, right? The guy whose only goal in life is to maximize the dollars he receives is a terrible, horrible person. And pretty much everybody would agree with that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's not, it, it, generally that's not a person that really exists. There's probably a few of them in the world. I mean, there's enough people that there's probably at least one or two, but generally speaking, people aren't like that. Uh, you know, charities exist already. Um, hospitals help people already. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things we get caught up in in this debate is we say people need health insurance. No, they don't. They need health care. And that's different from having health insurance. Right. Right. Yeah, so for me, so if, if I could go to a doctor <laughs> and pay him 20 bucks for him to look at my throat and go, oh, yes. yeah, you're, you're okay. I've received health care even though I don't have health insurance. So I'm tell you guys my story of Malaysian health care? No. What's that? Uh, so I was in Malaysia. Bad, 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 bad. It turned out it was food poisoning. Anyway, we only had so much U.S. dollars left. This was the end of our month-long trip. <laughs> And wandered into the clinic, and it was not pristine. I mean, it was, it was, uh, yeah. So you didn't want them slicing you open, basically. No, no, <laughs> you would not do surgery in this establishment. I mean, but we were terrified now because we don't know if our health insurance is going to work, et cetera. And he gives me all these pills. I mean, because I'm probably a day from going to the hospital. I mean, oh, it's, wow. you know, it's getting, it's bad. I've been, and uh, we, at the end of our U.S. cash and our Malaysian cash, we're like, oh, how the hell are we going to do this? And he gave me like six different prescriptions and these unlabeled bottles and told me that these are the way you take the, you know, these. <clears throat> and we're like, how much is this going to be? And it was $14. Nice. In Malaysia. Yeah. It worked yeah. like, it worked great. And it was Cipro. I mean, it's the same stuff that, I mean, the, the main ingredient was Cipro. Nice. The same stuff you get here. Very nice. Yeah. 14 bucks. Um, <laughs> so, it, you know, I, I, I think that... <laughs> The, the question comes down to what's the best way to help those people, right? And so Alec was talking about it's complicated. how efficient is the government at helping those people versus how efficient are charities at, at helping those people. There's an old econ <coughs> episode where somebody explained if, uh, if you are uninsured and you get particular forms of cancer, you are actually better off than if you are on Medicaid and you have those same forms of cancer. Because with Medicaid, they've got cost controls in place. We're going to do, we're going to authorize A, B, and C treatment. And if that doesn't work, too bad, sucks for you, you're going to die. If you're uninsured, they go, we're not going to get paid for this anyway. We might as well try and save the guy's life. Right? So I agree with you. We should figure out a way to help those people. But I would challenge the idea that the government being the way we do that is the best way to accomplish that goal. So what, what would happen yeah, I mean, if we implemented unfettered capitalism and it turned out that 99% of the resources were controlled by less than 1% of the population? Well, Wouldn't that be so a I would, problem? Here's, here's what I would ask. How well off are the other 99%? Uh-huh. Right? I mean, we, we, could, we could have so much abundance that 1% of the people could control 99% of it and the other 99% of people are still so wealthy they don't care. Mm-hmm. And that's, so that's cool. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, right. So for the it, next it, thousand okay. generations, you know, this, this, those people is, never have is, to work a day in their lives. This is, this is politics built on envy, right? If, if I'm happy with my life, 
and the way I'm leading it and the resources I have, why is somebody else having a better life a sin? And it really upsets me when Americans bring this up of all people, right? If you make more than $55,000 a year, you're in the top 1% in the world, mm-hmm. right? So to say it's okay for me to live how I live, but it's not okay for Bill Gates or Donald Trump to live how they live is incredibly hypocritical, mm-hmm. right? I agree. So we, we, let's, let's stop worrying about how much somebody has and let's worry about how little somebody has. And rather than tear people down, let's worry about lifting people up and focus on that. that well, yeah, that's my response to that. Don't we lift them up with the money that is being controlled by such a small population? Well, again, my, my, my <laughs> argument would be how efficient is it? We, we just talked about how politicians are bought and sold and how federal money is distributed. Hmm. How efficient is it, do you think, for the government to take those billions of dollars from those rich people and then distribute that to the poor people? Right? How, how, how efficient is that really going to be? I would argue it probably wouldn't be that efficient. Right? Well, if, if the so alternative is that, that it's much. not distributed at all. Right? Yeah. Well, it's, but we're, we're making the case that the distribution is actually irrelevant. But, right? It's this idea, as I mentioned earlier, privilege isn't about the privilege, it's about the oppressed. Right. Right. Like it's a different way of phrasing a problem, frankly, an inflammatory way, but, 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 but fine. It's a, uh, and, the, the issue is right. Off. Yeah, worst the, the, the issue mm-hmm. isn't that that you're doing really well. The issue is that there are people who are not mm. doing well. Mm. Right. Yeah. It, and that's my point. You know, if if people need help, we need to we need to help them. It, and as long as those rich people aren't forcing anyone to give them money right. or defrauding anyone, odds are they're probably helping poor people in the process. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so Bill Gates helped millions and millions of people around the world. Now, as us techies, we can talk about how crappy Windows is and all that stuff. But they enabled whole industries of people to make tons of money. The, the profit that was reaped by people <laughs> besides Bill Gates for what Bill Gates did is mountainous compared to the amount of money Bill Gates made. Mm-hmm. Right. He helped a ton of people. The the richest family in the world. Now, I haven't watched the Fortune. Uh, what is it? They do like the 400 wealthiest people in the world. I haven't watched that for a long time. But for many years in a row, when Bill Gates was number one and Warren Buffett was number two, if you added up the the wealth of the Walton kids, they completely dwarfed those guys. Right. And how did they make their money? Providing quality, low cost goods to the poorest people all across America. They made billions lifting up poor people and improving their quality of life. So if you really want to help those people, let those entrepreneurs find ways to serve that huge market of those people who need their services. Hmm. See what I'm saying? Yeah, I I hear the argument. And the utilitarian side of me says that people who work hard should be, I mean, they should do great. They should do fantastic and they can make a hundred times more money than me or a yeah. thousand times more money than me. That's totally fine. Yeah. And I don't envy them or d- disparage their success. That's fantastic. Yeah. But there's a line somewhere, I think, where it's obscene. It's obscene if someone has access to a hundred trillion dollars, a hundred trillion times more resources 
than another person. In, intrinsically, I would argue and, it's not because they could be very effective at managing that hundred trillion dollars of and resources. And there are people who would say the same thing about the way you and I live. No, I know, I know. So I, I just. That's my struggle with it, is we're so wealthy, relatively speaking, that to say, well, that, that's too wealthy. It's like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. And then the other, uh, thing, the other thing I would say is managing huge amounts of capital is not easy, right? I mean, it's, it's really difficult to continue to grow and sustain that much <coughs> money. If you look at the the top fortune, you know, 40 richest billionaires or whatever, it turns over fairly regularly. You don't see the same people on there for 40, 30, 50 years at a time. It's turning over because it's really hard to stay a billionaire. That idea is actually a metric. Of, I can't remember what it's called, but that, that's like a real thing. Yeah. When they do the economic freedom index, they look at how many um, first-generation millionaires there are compared to second-generation and third-generation because it's just presupposed that if you're like if you have money being passed down like that, there's right. probably state intervention somewhere or some unfair thing. In general, we actually expect markets to, to have the classes turning over. And 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 the, the the reason why is that theoretically, if you have somebody who's 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 born into wealth. And is well just that, and takes it for granted, and is therefore bad at managing it. He, he will lose it, right? So it's or he might have so much that he goes his whole life without losing it, but eventually it's going to right dissipate if it's poorly managed right. over time, or he'll manage it well and continue to build it. Like right. like that's kind of thing. People people tend to demonize interest rates or these ways of making money on money, but. Um, it's important to see past the number and realize that interest rates are fundamentally determined by things like, you know, by, by, um, by, by the market in general. And so, well, interest specifically is like the time delayed value of money. And that's, that's really valuable if you know where to invest money because it helps with entrepreneurs. And yeah. so, so it, it's, it's, it's important to realize that it, it's, it's, um, I think it's tempting to frame it as like a game where people are just moving numbers around, but that's not what's happening. Real resources are actually being allocated and we're all better off as a result. Yeah, of it. And, if, and if you're getting a return on that money, it's because you're investing it in something that's working that people are willingly giving money to right so you're investing that in something that has customers that value it enough that they're going to pay for it so they're still making the world a better place they're not doing it with their own hands because well frankly they don't have to well more power to them i can't do that but i hope my grandkids can someday so so there's nothing intrinsically wrong with 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 massive yeah disparages the the disparity in in, in wealth. Right. I'm not interested in disparity. I'm interested in the low point. Yeah. That, that's, that would be my argument as well. How bad is the worst off? Worst off? Yeah, pretty bad. I mean, to, yeah. yeah to, I mean, a lot, billions of people. Right. Yeah. Right. And what are you doing to oppress them? What am I doing? Yeah, what are you doing to oppress them? Uh, well, that's... The, right. Like the clothing that I purchase, et cetera. Oh, but but uh, is that is that the, really okay? The yeah. correct answer is you're not doing anything. Yeah, <laughs> right. I don't, I don't think that's true. Let's talk about the clothing thing. Oh, uh, the clothing thing, though, because this this one really interests me. Um, people people get upset about sweatshops, and um, so if it's like a forced labor slave camp where the people can't choose whether or not they're there. I, I know there are scams in other countries that occur where, like, people without education get, like, brought in, and then they, they move into basically this compound, and then they're slaves. Let's be clear. I, I'm not I'm not in favor of that. 
But if you have a situation where people are deciding to work at a particular place, even if it's, you know, even if the person who opens up the sweatshop is making a, you know, an obscene amount of profit and paying them almost nothing, evidently that individual believes that it's, it's worth their time to do it. As long as they're not being right. forced. And, and here's what's interesting. If it really bothers you that they aren't being paid enough, I would encourage you to give to them or maybe to open up a different place that makes uh, shirts. But again, this this weird privilege thing comes up where people think like, mm, they don't actually want to help the poor people. They just don't want their sensibilities to be offended. No, I just want to get rid of the sweatshop. No, we just should not have any sweatshops. The answer is to add tariffs to make it more difficult to do business in other countries. That's the real answer. And it comes back to the same idea. If the person is choosing to be there, and you and 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 uh, and, and, it, and you you think it's appalling that they have to that they have to go into that condition, then give them another option. Don't take away the one choice and therefore subject them to whatever alternative they didn't choose for themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and there were points in uh, <clears throat> English history, and I believe U.S. history, where child labor was a common thing, right? And people were paid very little, and that was a step along the way of reaching the prosperity we had today. And so it's it's wrong of us to deny them the ability to take what is the next step for them to develop their economy and to develop their skills. And, and let's be clear, in those cultures, I mean, I think it's wrong to frame... This thing comes up in economics where, yeah. um, kind of like you, you wanted to reframe profit. Just you know, just to be clear, he means yeah. all things, not just money. Yeah. The same thing happens with you know child labor. It's not as though... Children throughout history have not been expected to participate in, you know, I would argue more so historically, uh, children were expected to participate in the well-being of their family and were utilized, right. right, for their labor at young ages. I think that the fact that we don't have to do that now is, um, I mean, it is a relatively recent development that we have thanks to industrialization. So, so to say that because wealth. you're getting, right, to right. say that because you're getting rid of the sweatshop, you're getting rid of child labor, maybe nominally with your definition of labor, but I, I would be, I would be very surprised that the child doesn't have to labor in some way in order to survive in a different place. If they're poor enough that they're willing to accept the, the sweatshop job. Yeah, I mean, it, and again, this, you can look at it from the principled or moral perspective, but also the consequential perspective. You know, if they leave, what, what are the alternatives they have? You know, are they are they selling their children because they can't feed them? Are they being forced into prostitution? I mean, what what are those other options they have? And if those other options are so great, why are they at the sweatshop? Why are they working at the, the sweatshop? Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I, the well, but you, you, you cited your, your purchasing of a shirt maybe as a form of oppression. I just wanted to say <laughs> yeah. that I don't think that that's the case. At well, all. I want you my, to forgive yourself, Jay. No, my concern about yeah. that is that 95 percent of the money in that transaction goes to the American marketing and packaging of that. And if we could push 10% of that to better wages in the third so, world countries where that's actually happening, wouldn't that be great? So here's kind of, here's kind of the interesting thing. Um, when, when you have, when you have firms engaging in the marketplace, a, a common criticism of firms, which we usually think of as corporations is how is it that this firm is, is, you know what I mean? Is making such a profit. Um, but the thing to realize is, is that firms are fictions and they don't really make profit directly. So, so when, when a firm, you know what I mean, makes profit and invests in its employees and invests in its infrastructure and it stays around for longer, continuing to do that thing that people evidently want enough for it to make such a profit. So 
Um, as strange as it sounds, I would argue that these, these, these first movers getting a huge profit is what incentivizes them to go in. And maybe other people will come along when it's profitable, maybe they won't. But the fact that they're able to make those obscene profits at least keep that bit of revenue going in. And, and I would say there's nothing, there's nothing stopping a firm from saying I'm going to spend less on marketing and pay those employees more. Well, yeah, no, I would, what, what stops them from doing that is that they're not competitive. With right. other firms that aren't doing it. Well, hold on, hold on. Right. There's nothing stopping them from doing it. But like you said, it might be a really bad decision if they want to continue doing business. Right. Or blind right. consumerism that doesn't care. Yeah. Well, you know, that could be how you do your marketing. So things like Tom's Shoes. You yeah. know, the way they do their marketing is you're going to buy an incredibly overpriced pair of shoes, but you're going to feel good about it. Mm-hmm. That's something people have chosen to say, you know what, I really value that. I like that. I'm going to do that. So, so there are alternatives mm. in, in the marketplace, I would say. And, you know, you get, oh, gosh, I don't want to get into this, but, you know. <laughs> what? You don't want to get into something for only two hours. Right, right. You know, people <laughs> who get good feelings by buying free trade coffee. Yeah. Right? They're paying more for that coffee because it makes them feel good to buy that coffee. So in the marketplace, in the marketing it's totally possible for somebody to say, you know what, if you buy this clothing, you can feel good about it because we pay twice as much as those other firms. And I would encourage them to try it. You know, yeah. if, if somebody wants to stake their own money on proving if that could work, go for it. Yeah. You know, see if, see if it works. It might, they, they might change the whole industry. Um, it's, it's certainly possible. I think one of the, one of the common misunderstandings that I just started to realize is there's people view this competition between like employers and employees. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm trying so as an employer, I'm against you because I want to pay you as little as possible. And as an employee, you're against me because you want to make sure. as much money Minimum as possible. Minimum amount of work. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And, and, <clears throat> and really that's, that's a false, uh, that's a falsehood. The real competition is among employers competing with other employers to get employees and employees competing with other employees to get jobs. Right. So when, when somebody says, when somebody's willing to work for a dollar a day, it's because they're competing with somebody else who wants to make $2 a day. It's not because the company who's hiring them has somehow forced them down to only work for a dollar a day. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I, I think, uh, it's it's a situation where they're saying, okay, this is what I'm willing to accept because I would rather have this job here than not have this job here. Now, as as more options become available and more employers start competing for that labor, then those wages go up. But telling the factories, oh, you guys have to leave, that competition never happens, and those wages never go up, and that cost and that uh, quality of life never improves. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Did we solve everything? <laughs> I'm pretty sure we solved nothing. And, and, and also, also, capitalism gets framed as competitive, but I think it's actually one of the most cooperative institutions that we, uh, as a society, or as a species, have ever constructed. While it's true that I may be in competition with with what are what are equivalent to me in the marketplace, my homogenous good equivalent, right? Other developers with similar skill sets, I mostly cooperate. With everyone else, I cooperate with Dave. Yeah. Right? I cooperate. Right? Most even even Burger King and McDonald's <laughs> go into the same strip mall. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. No, I do. I, I think I, I don't know if you guys are on the same page or not. I, I look at the seven billion people on this planet and the massive disparity, and I 
I'm, I'm appalled. I'm appalled at how much, uh, the disparity there is in people's access to resources and access to, you know, just basic medical care when they get sick and access to, you know, that it's, it's terrible. And I, I don't know that any given changes to any given system are going to solve that. I'm, I'm personally dissatisfied with a, an, an endless loop of consumerism that a lot of Americans seem to be in that just kind of, I think, blindly feeds itself to no, you know, avail. And in all so, modern countries, not just America, but, you know, I, I think that we, we don't understand the plight of the poor in as, we don't. as, as, I, as rich people that we are. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree that a lot of people live in terrible circumstances and it, and it is terrible. Um, and I would also agree that a lot of us are ignorant to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost, uh, never mind. I'm not going to finish that sentence. Yeah. But so a lot I mean, of us are ignorant to it. And my, my, my bottom line from a utilitarian perspective is, Hey, wouldn't it be nice if we did Just, more? And we, and we have done a lot of, you know, statistically, you look at the, the Gates Foundation and their, and the United Nations and all of the extreme poverty and it's down and we're shooting the 2020 goals and all the millennial yeah. goals and all this stuff. And so we are making a lot of progress. And so that's, that's great. I think and, we and just have so far to go. Well, but <laughs> we have so far to go. You know, <laughs> the thing that's brought the most people out of poverty has been free enterprise. Yeah. And liberalization of markets. Oh, absolutely. China, night and day. Well, and they, India they, as well. Yeah. India, it's been huge. Yeah. India is great because it's a democracy, and so I think they're gonna they're gonna do really well. Uh, so I think. Really, the the way to do that is to just continue to bring that to as much of the world as possible. The really frustrating part is uh, some of the stuff just takes time, and you can't accelerate it like you want to, mm. right? So, yeah. Oh yes, I can vote for me. I was going to say, I'll fix right? It. Vote for Jay. He'll fix the problem. <laughs> and if I can appeal to your utilitarianism, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's anybody who wants other people to be poor. Um, Oh yeah, there's other, were, there's people out there. I'm sure there are. Yeah. You're, you're right. I shouldn't say that. There, I think there's very few. There's a comparatively few. Yeah. yeah, comparatively few people who want that. Then please. Um, <laughs> and while and, and so and so I um I would argue that the utilitarian solution to poverty is actually that while it would it would be ideal if we could, well I don't even want to say this, but I, I can understand your sentiment of saying like it would be ideal if consumers just thought differently or if people wanted to do different things. Um, I don't, I honestly don't completely buy into that, but, but to, to build on that idea, I would, I would say that, that because we can't change people's desires and intentions, that this system does a really good job of lining them up so that the rest of the world benefits from their self-interest. Hmm. This system meaning current American capitalism or this system meaning anarcho-capitalism, which is where we need to they're, they're, they're not, I mean, I have an ideal state that I would like to be, that I'd like the market to be in, and that's anarcho-capitalism, but I don't, I don't distinguish between the capitalistic forces of today and the capitalistic forces of the ideal world, or the state and the market. Um, I wouldn't say current American capitalism, because it sounds like I'm being tricked into endorsing some things that I probably wouldn't. Right. But I mean, there's things with which I, I disagree. I'm all gen- about, this podcast is all about tricking people. <laughs> general, but I would say general liberalization of markets and letting people engage freely in free market and exchange and enterprise. Hmm. Trickle down, baby. It'll all trickle down, right? 
No, no that's, that's not what. That, that's not what that's that is. That's not at all. it at all. No, that's not it at all. All right, withdrawn. I was Laffer. totally. I was yeah. dead wrong. What is it? The Laffer curve, or I don't know. <laughs> I think that has to do with tax rates. Well, but I think that's where the trickle down comes. Thing. I thought that was all right. Actually, refers to trickle down. Yeah, 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 and the Laffer curve or something like Laffer. that. Yeah. I, I've read that no person alive has actually advocated for trickle down economics. It's something somebody made up. All right. Um, yeah, I have the article open in my browser. I've had it open for probably a year now. I haven't oh. actually read the whole thing yet. That's impressive. <laughs> so, so the Laffer curve just is a is an idea. Um, let me look at Reaganomics and see if I can find it because oh, that's, that's the that's the derogatory name for it. But um, it As is you this idea taxes, that, you can that yes, you increase revenue. You, right? Yeah, because when the government taxes, it adds it makes the market less efficient. So paradoxically, you increase tax rates and end up with less revenue overall. Yeah. But and so it's, it's about finding that sweet spot. But there is a curve to it where you make taxes right. so there, – there's yeah. a point where taxes are so low, it, it, it just reduces revenue. Right. And, yeah. and, and this is the point. It's actually not a libertarian idea. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it's, it's one of those pseudo-libertarian ideas like, well, I should be careful how I say this. Voucher systems in schools would be an improvement, but I want a completely private market of education. So, like, voucher, you know what I mean? It's that kind of idea. Like, how could the government efficiently provide services? How could the government efficiently tax people? And I, I would rather there not be a government, but but if we're going to have one, you know, maybe wow. go in that direction. <laughs> I brought Alec here so that I could be the reasonable one. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. It's a, right. it's a strategy. It's a good yeah. strategy. Yeah. Wait, did we all agree prohibition bad? Is that what we agreed? Yeah, I'm interested, I, I I'm interested in what did. your thoughts are. Yeah. I think we agreed coming in here. What do you, what do you think about guns? Oh, I... We, uh, <laughs> so now that we've all talked, to our Jay, minutes. what do you think? <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm torn. I don't know. Let me think about it. We'll get back together someday and uh, think about it some more. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I'm not stalling. I just don't. It. it They're hard just, problems. The, That's the, a fine the current. It, it, it's really sad to me that we don't have like action that we can take and is the the most and and that's not what we said earlier sorry we, no, we no, talked I, a lot no, about no. mental health we talked a lot about uh monitoring destigmatizing mental health and the the you know other things that can be done it's uh yeah it, it, one of the paradoxes of uh libertarianism is the phrase you know don't just do something stand there <laughs> right right just, so, for instance, there was a great recession that happened in the 1920s, but nobody talks about it because it just kind of went away all by itself relatively quickly because the government did nothing. It just let the market sort the stuff out. Now, I, I think that's different from the gun problem, right? I, I think that's a very different kind of issue. But uh, generally speaking, it's like for most of these things, you just need to let them sort themselves out. If you if you buy into the, uh, the if you really buy into the capitalist ideology like I do, you you come to this weird conclusion that you're right. I don't know. These are all my theories, but the only way that we can know for sure is more or less Let by letting people, people own private it. property voluntarily associate. And yeah. it, it may turn out that in some areas and for some groups of people, total gun prohibition works really well, and for some groups of people. Total gun, conceal, carry, whatever. I don't know what you call that. Anti-prohibition, encouragement works really well. I'm not sure there's one universal answer. Um, I suspect, you know, I'm, I'm on the pro-gun side. I suspect it'll be that, but I don't know for sure. Hmm. Hmm. Cool.
Thank All you, right. Jay. Thanks, guys. Woo! We we did not spend two hours and fifteen minutes. I think Alec and I went three hours, so we're we're short. So thanks. I'll try to link to the stuff, and I'll send you the the GitHub links, and you can send me more links. And, okay. Uh, thanks. Pull requests, and I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you.